there and welcome to another episode of The Bible. Wait, what? Yes, this is the podcast that unravels the mysteries of the Bible's most perplexing, puzzling and thought-provoking passages. My name is Rowan and each session I'm joined by a member of our team at C3 Church, Camden, Picton and Thoreau, as they quiz me on some of the more complicated, confusing, challenging and even confronting passages that we read in our weekly Bible reading plan. understand that reading the Bible can be a challenging and perplexing experience. Many people just don't know where to start, they get confused, and so they give up. Well, that's why this podcast exists, to equip you with the tools and the knowledge to explore the richness and depth of the Bible for yourself. So grab your Bible, take a deep breath, and join us as we explore this week's passages. To learn more about us or to get in touch with us at C3 Church Camden, Picton and Thoreau, visit any of our three locations websites. That's c3camden.church, c3picton.church and c3thoreau.church. Or you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram and YouTube just by searching for any of our locations names. So without any further delay, let's dive into today's conversation. Hello, hello. Welcome to this wonderful podcast. Hello, welcome everybody. <laughs> My name's Jeannie. I'm sitting down here as always with our excellent pastor, Pastor Rowan. Thank you. Who's going to tell me everything about the Bible, everything I needed to know. I I'm want, not going to tell you. Know. We're going to talk about it and We're see if we can learn together. But I need help. You need help. We all <laughs> yeah. need help with the Bible. Yes, Jeannie. I do because this, this is a tricky topic. Is it? Yeah, this is our kingdom prayer series, mm-hmm. correct? Yes, so, that's correct. And the topic is protection. Mm. Which has all kinds of challenging implications attached to it. What does protection look like? What will the Lord protect us from? What we think he might protect us from, but maybe we're not protected from. And why do we have to pray for protection? Mm, yeah, that's all going to come up. Is it? One hopes so. I hope so too. Yes, because it's in kind of in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Yes, it is. It is in the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, yeah so, I'm learning about that. Yeah, there's so a lot, this, lot more in that prayer than I thought there was. Yeah, and then how do we process through what protection looks like when we pray for it? Um, because the Bible's full of examples where maybe people thought they were expecting a certain level of protection that they didn't receive, and then you get into the whole complexity around suffering. And that's right. You know, as we record this, it's the week immediately following the Hamas attack, and there's obviously all kinds of questions that are. Circulating. We don't know what, what the situation will be like by the time this goes to air, but we're going to talk about some of those issues. They're going to be relevant to that kind of thing, aren't they? Yeah, so it is with a heavy heart that we record this podcast mm. today. Mm. And so if it is laced with tones of tragedy and horror and lament, uh, that's why. That's right. Yeah. yeah. Well, what, what, I'm just looking at the weeks that this is coming. This is coming out 6th of November and um, I've already recorded – uh, the w- last week's episode with Jimmy already. So that was talking about lament and that was prior. We recorded that prior to, you know, the situation in Israel. So um, it'd be interesting to see how that affects today's conversation. You're a champion, by the way, recording all of this. He's doing it ahead of time because you're going on leave, yes, right? Yes, that's right. As you're listening to this. Oh, no, by the time this comes out, I'll actually, yeah, I'll be, you and I will be sitting in the Masters, C3 College Masters uh, by the time this comes out. Yes, you'll be speaking. I'll be listening. I'll be listening. <laughs> 
<laughs> I'll be drowning, actually. <laughs> no, we'll be, we'll be right. We'll have fun that week. So this week we're talking about uh, some Psalms and the book of Thessalonians. Yes, correct. One Thessalonians. One Thessalonians, all five chapters. That's yes. where we're parking ourselves. So these Psalms, they all seem to be praying for protection or thanking God for protection. And then we have in the book of Thessalonians, uh, Paul writing to the Thessalonians, uh, they are wondering why Christ hasn't come yes. yet. Yes, why are we facing hardship and persecution and why are we waiting for Jesus? That's exactly what it is in a nutshell. And some yep. misunderstandings will get there about what they thought to, they were going to expect when God's kingdom came and it was a little bit yep. different to what they were expecting. So are we going to be talking about the second coming in this book? Uh, in First this? Thessalonians definitely does. <laughs> oh, First and Second yeah. Thessalonians both talk about the second coming of Christ and the implications of that and what that looks like. Yes, that's, yeah. big, that's really the main topic of those two books. So if you know anything about Israel and the book of Revelation, uh, <laughs> talking about the second coming right now is not exactly something I yeah, wanted to there's do. There's a few crazies out there who, um, uh, you know, think that what's going on over there is all linked to it, but... That's not what we're going to talk about today. We'll see. We'll see we what happens. We'll see, we'll see what the conversation takes us, Jenny. Yes. All right. But hopefully we will. Also, I should mention um, Judges 5 is at the end of this reading, but Pastor Rowan and I have already sat down and discussed Judges, Judges 5. five. Yep. And because um, I'm a little bit caught up for time this week as well, I have not I have nothing new on that. Okay. So I'll direct you uh, to go to the back to the original part, podcast on that. Go back. We can the chapter markers are all in the notes in the show notes of every episode. So we'll be able to, we'll get you when we get there. We'll give you the show notes and yep. the and the time marker and all that kind of stuff. Okay. All right. All right. Psalm eighteen is Psalm coming 18. up. This is Psalm 18 and the beginning of it before the actual uh, verses happen, my Bible says that this is for the choir director, a Psalm of David, the servant of the Lord. He sang this song to the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from all his enemies and from Saul. Is that the day Saul dies Uh, or is this just another time? We have plenty of enemies after that too. So um, it's interesting because in 2 Samuel 22, at the end of David's life, this psalm is inserted. So Psalm 18, 2 Samuel 22, uh, word for word. They basically, the, when they've collected the book of 2 Samuel, they've inserted Psalm 18 in there. And I'm just looking at it now. It actually says the same thing. David sang the songs of the Lord on the day the Lord rescued him from all his enemies and from Saul. So same story. It's not word for word, but it's close. Well, very close. Yeah. yeah. So it's in, inserted into the end of David's life. It's, there's a couple of stories right at the end of Second uh, Samuel which sort of sum up the end of David's life. Well, almost the end because I think First Kings chapter 1 is also about David's um, point 1 and 2 where they appoint David. So I think it's intended to be like a summary of his life, but when it was actually written, whether it was written when he was delivered from Saul, which is really the beginning of his kingship. So that's like how long did he reign? 40 years. So this is yep. like, so was it 40 years in before he died or was it at the end of his life? But they've inserted it towards the end of his life. So I suspect uh, it's probably, a, it's been intended to be a sum total of his reflections back over his life and how the Lord had protected him, provided for him. Or is it a psalm that he just keeps coming back to? You that think? too, that's he possible may just too. Keep he may have praying it, it yep. singing it. Yep. Maybe and it's so synonymous often, with who he is. That's right. And oftentimes, maybe that was it. And oftentimes, 
you know, songwriters will do this. Poets will do this. We'll re, you know, you, you'll have something and then later on you'll rework the original content to add in new chapters and new verses and new context. So I think it could even be like that. It could be like a later version of an original psalm. There's, there's probably an answer out there, but um, all, all we can do within this context of scripture is just know that it's inserted late in Samuel's life, in David's life, in the book of Samuel. So it's immediately, because chapter 23, immediately following it, is called David's last words. These are the last words of David. So then he quotes what God, that's a different total summing up of his life, of how God protected him. So I'm going to assume that at least it was something that was intended to be looking back over his life. You just made me think of, you know that Elton John song, Candle in the Wind? Candle in the Wind. They reworked that. He reworked for Diana, that for Princess but he Diana. he just changed one word. He just changed one word and reworked the song. Yep. Oh, anyway, I Isn't, wish he changed yeah. more of it, but one yes, word. Yes, that's right. And that reworked and sung it about Diana. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. Isn't that amazing how that's the timelessness of art, I suppose? Yeah. A poetry? Poetry, yeah. song. Yep, exactly. All right, so I'll just start reading this off. Sure. Uh, verse 1 in Psalm 18, not in 2 Samuel. I, well, it is similar, but I'm well, just I've, I've telling you where I'm reading it Psalm from. 18. I've gone back to Psalm 18 now so I can follow along. I love I've you. never actually compared oh. if they're exactly the same. So well, I, do you want made, me to right now? No, 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 it's fine. They're, no, well, just first sentence. First sentence. I love you, Lord. You are my strength. That's Psalm 18. Mm-hmm. Psalm uh, 2 Samuel. The Lord is my rock, okay. my fortress, my saviour. So there you go. That's, so that's verse 2 of Psalm 18. Yes, so there you go. It's already been adapted and changed. Yes. There you go. So it is still (laughs) my fortress and my shelter. My saviour, sorry. My God is my rock in whom I find protection. He is my shield, the power that saves me and my place of safety. I called on the Lord who is worthy of praise and he saved me from my enemies. Did he always save him from his enemies? Eventually. Eventually. Because Uh, do you think he really considered his son an enemy? Uh, no, I don't think he considered Absalom an enemy, to be honest. <laughs> his response would indicate when, when Absalom died was that he thought that that was his fault, not Absalom's fault. David is really a man of, um, oh, compassion's not the word. He has a lot of affection, doesn't he? he has He has affection for his family, yep. I think, and affection for the Lord. I th- I think of David as a pure artist, very melancholy, very nuanced in emotion, very not very not a black and white personality. There's so much depth in him, which enables him to write these songs, but also makes him an incredibly complicated person. He's certainly not a shallow personality, is he? No, he's not. No. no. You see this nuance in like in a story like, is Absalom my enemy or not? Um, he, he's walking out and Shimei is cursing him. He says, well, my own son is trying to kill me. How much more this Benjamite is trying to kill me? And yet he grieves Absalom's death. So there's a there's a lot of depth and com- complexity to David's mm. character. I mean, he throws himself on the floor, on the yeah, ground, yeah. in grief, in tears, yeah. in repentance at, at many times. I often think to be and one of his dances. servants must have been complicated because you just didn't know what you were going to get on <laughs> no. any given day with David. <laughs> That's right, yes. <laughs> but but I think I used to be almost down on that. Um, and even though I'm not wired that way, I've come to understand that Probably more people are wired that way than my personality. So I, I, I what's tend your personality? To, oh, I just tend to be a bit more black and white, um, and that's not good. I, it's, I used to think I was quite proud, proud of myself, thinking you know, everything's black and white, and I didn't do very well with nuance and grey. 
um, I've gotten better at dealing with nuance and gray as I've realized that black and white doesn't always solve my problems. It just causes me to bury my emotions. So I've come to realize, no, I actually think David's probably more in touch with reality than I am. (laughs) Even though I get, sometimes I read David's Psalms and I think, I couldn't live that way, Dave. One minute you're ready to end it all. The next minute you're on the mountaintop, you're in the valley, you're on the mountaintop. But I've realized it's probably a more accurate perspective on what human life is like than what I naively (laughs) thought it was about. Do you think we should read the Psalms as being personal, like as specific to ourselves? I think they're intended to be deeply meditative literature. Yes. I think that the idea of the Psalms is to see yourself in those stories. So when we read that bit there, I love you, Lord, you are my strength. We read it as recognizing David wrote that, but then also that we should be saying, or not should be, but our heart of worship is the same. Yes. Yes. Yeah. And there'll be super, super conservative evangelicals who will push back on that and say, no, no, it's all about Jesus. You need to see, you know, it all pointing to Jesus, etc. While that's definitely there, I think this is meditative scripture. These songs are written just like modern church songs. We don't just go, oh, yeah, you know, Kenny, Kenny Bartley wrote that song. It's all about his own experience. <laughs> he might be leading a song that he's written in his own, you know. And it's a good experience. It's but, a good song, yeah, whether it's always. A, it's <laughs> always a good song, but whether it's coming from a place of despair or a place of happiness, if I'm sitting there listening to Kenny sing that song and I think, oh, that's good for Kenny, I'm, I'm failing to miss out on, I'm missing out on what the ultimate intention of that song is, that I would place myself in Kenny's experience and experience something of God through his experience as I sing that song or meditate on those words. That's how we should read the Psalms. Do you find yourself when you're reading the Bible, there are parts of it that are hard to understand, fathom and, and stomach and even learn about. But when you flick into the Psalms, it's it's almost like it's an arrow straight to your heart at times. Like it just opens up the doors to your emotion and to your humanity. I would say I've gotten better at that. That's what I was saying before. I used to read it and I just go, I can't identify with that. Like I'd read David and think, if I let myself get to the place that David's at, I would be, um, you know, on the floor. I would be literally, Crying. well, I'd be further than that. I like, I read it and think I could not function at that level of despair. I would be um, suicidal basically if, but I came to real, I've come to realize that just because I can't seem to process that level of depth of despair doesn't mean that lots of other people don't see that as a normal part of their lives. So I've had to learn to look beyond my own um, emotional processing and come to realize that's actually more of a weakness that I have than a strength. And as I've done that, I've been more able to see myself in particularly the the Psalms of cry, the cries of despair, the lament in the Psalms. It took me many years to even be able to get to the point where I could handle the lament in the Psalms. And to be honest, I think I talked about this with Jimmy as well on the last week's episode. I still don't think, I don't think as churches we have a handle on this. If half the Psalms or a third of the Psalms are lament, we don't sing half of our third of our songs in church aren't lament. <laughs> no, know? they're not. They're all praise up, 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 up all the time. And I think we need to regrasp some of that. That's why we've included lament as a standalone topic in this whole series, because we need to focus on the fact that life isn't always up and to the right. Is that why you often have you, meaning the collective Pentecostal church, because you represent everyone? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's all on me. <laughs> uh, the, the Holy Spirit moment, I suppose, in the church service where you want people to come forward for mm-hmm. prayer, you want, uh, and in that moment, you're acknowledging that hey, we know life is is pretty yes. tough, and, yes, and a lot right. of people in the church service are at that point mm-hmm. of despair. And sadly, I would say all of us um, 
don't have the call in our life like David did. I think maybe David could withstand any suicidal tendencies and his deep depression and lament because he had been anointed three times by God. He Mm -hmm. knew that he was going to be this king. Like he knew there was still life purpose for him. Um, But sometimes in our lives we don't feel that there is purpose. Yeah. But he he had that higher calling, you know, and and maybe – do you think it's the higher calling that kept him pushing through the dark times? Yes, I do. Yes, okay, that makes sense. Yeah, that yeah. promise of something. So, I, But I would think that if – I think God has that plan for all of us. So part of it is getting to see the thing that we're hopeful about, whether that's personal or corporate. Like the book of Hebrews is talking about you know, pushing through, enduring, keep going, um, whether we can get to that point where we know that there's something better on the other side, all of us need something to live for. I like that answer um, because when you you are in that moment in life and you realise that God does have a plan for you and purpose like David did, it's then that you can praise. It's then that you can write these sort of psalms. Yeah. It's then you can say the Lord is my rock, my fortress and my saviour because you've been at the bad point and here you are and you're looking back going, he was there the whole time. He is my protector. He is my shield. Mm. And David's able to say that because he's seen God do that. That's right. Amen. Yeah. Yeah. Have he's you, looking back. Have you seen God do that in your life? Yeah. I, I have a um, constant, <laughs> I have a document where I look back on of the things that God has done in my life as I reflected on them. And I just go back because the moment I read those things, they're like a a document, like you write down I what write God down, had, yeah. has done. I'm not a journaler, but I have a, a document where I just go back and reflect on things that where I've seen breakthroughs in my life. I sat down one time and I just wrote this document of everything I could think of, and now I just add to it. But it just it's there to serve as that reminder to me of, okay, God got me through that. God got me through that. And all the emotion I felt, and here I am, I'm still standing. I felt like I was going to be crushed under that, but got through it and God was faithful. And that just stirs me forward. A little bit like the... Uh, like this, David doing this in the psalm. Yeah, and I was just going to say, joke, that you know, David wrote this uh, after he was saved from Saul and then you said he wrote, remembered it, I guess, on his deathbed. Well, I might say to you, Rowan, get that book out yes. <laughs> and go through it in those moments. In those yeah. moments, exactly. Yeah, in that moment. In yeah. that moment, yeah, and go yeah. back and go, God God, You were there, you. Yeah. yeah. Even though I'm unwell, look how you've been, look what you've done. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And that's why I like this psalm a lot. Yeah, it's a good psalm like that. And that it's in there twice means we should pay attention to it. Pay attention to it, it, yep. And the imagery that this psalm uses, um, the ropes of death entangled me, floods of destruction swept over me in verse 4, the grave wrapped its um, ropes around me, death laid a trap in my path. It's a pretty dark experience he's describing there. Yeah, and he he knew that God was going to rescue him. But at a point, and we've discussed in previous chapters, that, that he did lose his Yeah, in fact, I was just being on a Zoom with Pastor Edwina this morning yeah. and I referenced you talking about that on our podcast, about that whole thing of uh, that time in the desert where David lost his way and it uh, wasn't uh, until Zick Lag that he... Very it's kind been of a you. Revel- it's been a revelation <laughs> to me. I've always thought of David as going, listen to a previous podcast where we talked about that. We just go look through where we talked about David in the desert. And Jeannie made this amazing point that, you know, David's time in the desert, you pretty much said that it wasn't all like full of faith, was it? There was, no, it there was a dark time in his life. I've never seen it that way until you made the point. And it's been an eye opener to me to realize that it took David to, like it says in verse six, but in my distress, I called to the Lord. Yeah. Maybe he's referring to his zigzag experience yes. right there. Yeah. I, yeah. That moment yeah. that he does remember the Lord and he yes. calls back because he's in distress. The gray is wrapping his ropes, its ropes around him. In my distress, I cried out to the Lord. I prayed for, for, 
to my God for help. And he heard me from yes. his sanctuary. He heard me. Yep. God is listening. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> I think God was listening. It's just that it took David, like all of us, it took us a while to actually get to the point of crying out rather than trying to solve it or just overwhelmed by the anxiety and the crushing of the problem. But there's a key there. In my distress, cry out to the Lord. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And, and there's a lot in this psalm. I'm just going to pick out a few things because yeah, it's it. actually 50 it verses. It is. It's a massive psalm. There's no way we can do it all. No. But we're no. on like 20 well, minutes into our podcast already or something. <laughs> I could do it all, but I don't have a week. No, that's right. <laughs> okay. So in this one, verse 7, that starts to use the, the amazing imagery. The earth mm-hmm. quaked and trembled. The foundations of the mountains shook. Smoke poured from his nostrils. Mm. His nostrils being God's nostrils mm. at this point. Oh, because, sorry, the verse before that, they quaked because of his anger. Smoke poured from his nostrils. Fierce flames leapt or leaped from his mouth. Glowing coals blazed forth from him. What does it read like to you? Is this literal? What does it read like to you? Um, Describe what you you see as you read verse 7 to verse 8 there. I am seeing the what David recognizes as the strongest natural occurrences around him. He's mm. using this imagery to describe a big God who's capable of, yep. of anything and everything. So he's using what he sees to yep. apply that to the power of God totally. and what he imagines the power of God. Because I see two things, an earthquake and a volcano erupting. Oh, wow. That's what it reads like. You read it? literally. Uh, well, that's what I'm, that's what I, as I'm reading it, that's what I'm saying. Whether or not he's, actually referring to a literal earthquake and a literal volcano. I don't think there's any volcanoes in that. Well, there, there is. I mean, the north of Israel is all volcanic rock, but I don't think there's any live volcanoes in that area. So even at that time, I'm not sure. But earthquakes very much a common part of that culture. Yes, yep. So um, in, that, in the Middle East there. So whether oh. or not he's just... So you're saying an earthquake could have happened at that time. Is that what you're saying? It's quite possible. Earthquakes, oftentimes the earthquakes in ancient Near East culture were seen as um, a judgment of the, of the gods or... Yahweh. So that's a very common part of it. Um, so in you, so I'm not saying it is literal. It could just be purely figurative, but it's also possible that he's experiencing something of his, whether it was right at that moment or not, where he senses God doing something. The bit that doesn't make sense to me is the reference to smoke pouring, fierce flames leaping from his mouth, glowing coals blazed forth from him. I mean, that sounds like a volcanic eruption to me. I can't think of anything else it, it could be. It does. See, I read that as just like a, a very angry God or a metaphorical picture, I suppose, of But what's of going God. How, how does a person have that experience to be able to describe that? Unless they've seen unless it. Unless they've seen something or heard something of that because that is a very rare, it's a very literal experience. So there has to be something in his psyche. You don't describe glowing, I mean, glowing coals do not fall from heaven. Unless it's a volcano. I can't think of any other reason other than something supernatural. Uh, Sodom and Gomorrah? <laughs> yes. Okay. So maybe, there's a good point. So maybe he's referencing back Sodom to Sodom and, and Gomorrah. Gomorrah. Yep. Uh, Quite right. possible. Yep. Clever that's true. David. So that could David. be, that, there's a good point. That that's actually makes more sense than a literal volcano. See, I love this. That he's, he's actually referencing other parts of the Bible. Or, yes. Yeah. Um, that he knows and he's bringing it all into his purpose of telling the story of who he imagines God to be in this moment, the way that. God yes. protects him. He uses earthquakes and volcanoes, yep. ash, things from the sky. Verse 9 is about a storm. It's a storm. He's creating a picture of a very powerful God. Yep. Absolutely. A powerful God who controls the, the elements, the elements yep. but who's also on his side. Yes, that's right. But it's not a pretty picture of this God. I mean, it's terrifying. 
Mm, right, it's, it's, it's very ins- awe-inspiring, isn't it? Awe-inspiring. Shrouding himself in darkness, veiling his approach on a storm. Basically, it's a, it's a pitch at Baal, the storm god, really, isn't it? It's like uh, God's the real god of the storm. Yes. <laughs> yeah, he shrouded himself in darkness, yeah. as you just kind of said, veiling his approach. Yep, thick clouds shielded the brightness around him and rained down hailing, hail and burning coals. The Lord thundered from heaven, the voice of the Most High resounding. This is not the image of God when one thinks about Christ, is it? Mm. We tend to think more of the loving side of mm. God, of mm. the um, gentle Holy Spirit, the nurturing, the tend, tending care. Uh, but there's also this. There's also this, but this picture of this, vind- this isn't a vindictive God. This is a just God yep. because he is, he's talking about the fact that God is rescuing him from unjust treatment. And so a just God, a powerful God, an awe-inspiring God is reaching down because it says he he drew he reached down and rescued me and drew me out of deep water. So that now there's this picture of a protection coming into this. But I want to serve a God that is able to do that. He's able to control the elements. He's able to, um, you know, overcome the enemy with the breath of his mouth. We see that in the book of Revelation. So Jesus is referred to in that way in the book of Revelation. He overthrow them with the breath of his mouth and the word of his, you know, the, the word coming out of him. There is definitely military metaphors referred uh, referencing Jesus' um, ultimate victory. It's not all necessarily gentle Jesus, meek and mild. No. I wonder if David as well is using this imagery here to remind you when you're in a, a dark place and you see the thunders and the storms coming along to remind you and think, hey, David spoke about God being like that. Yes, I think there's, that's true too. Yeah, well, I think so. But weird here how God is appearing with with darkness. You know, don't you think that's strange? God would appear with darkness. Uh, um, I shrouded used to, himself in darkness. Yeah, I used to, um, but I think it's metaphorical. I'm getting there's a current Bible project series talking about the the, um, the dragons in the Bible and all this sort of stuff and the chaos beasts of the Bible, and I'm getting a different perspective on this that. God didn't actually take away darkness. Darkness is just, God just separates the light from the darkness. He doesn't necessarily take it away. There'll be there'll be a time in the future where there's no darkness and no sea and that's the time when ultimate victory comes. But we live in a time where God has separated himself out from darkness. So if he chooses to shroud himself in darkness, to it's a picture, to me it's just a metaphor of he's coming quickly, he's coming when they're not looking for him and he's going to bring victory to his people. Hiding himself. It's like, yeah, hiding himself in the darkness, which sort of says to me, he can come to you in your own darkness. There there you go. That'll preach. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That's good. Meet you in the darkness. Yes, absolutely. Good word. Yeah, because um, it says here, in in this darkness, he's shrouded in the darkness, but in verse 16, he reaches down from heaven and he rescues me. Mm. And then it switches into this sort of discussion of light. It sort of moves, doesn't it? Yep. And he rescued me from my powerful enemies. Um, they attacked me in a moment when I was in distress, but the Lord supported me in verse 18. He led me to a place of safety because he delights in me. So God has come into the darkness, pulled him out, rescued him, and now he's placing him in the light. Yes. And yeah. we're seeing... Talk about that separation. He's taking him and he uses the reference of deep waters, which is the other reference to the place where God isn't where he hasn't ordered. It's chaos. Yeah. In the middle of the, the chaos, chaos, God has pulled him out of deep waters and placed him in a place of safety. That's just, this is what God does. He meets us in our chaos. 
He doesn't distance himself from that. He will come into the chaos and he will draw us out of that. Jesus came into the chaos of life and drew us out of that. Yeah, right. And I like here that he's picked, he's shown God to be this powerful God, but now he switches like in these verses, next verses, as God is now a divine helper. There's almost a compassionate side of him now, isn't there? Softness to him that wasn't in the previous bit. Like this, he took me, he drew me out, he delivered me. They were too strong. God comforted me in the day of of my calamity. That is worse yep. than his weakness. Rescued me, rewarded me, restored me. They're all very um, compassionate words. Mm. And here in verse 9, so David was in this dark place, hidden away, and then he um, leads him to a, another translation to a broad place. So he mm. was in hiding. He's now out of hiding. Does that read yes, to you? I yeah. think so, yeah. Strange idea, God delights in us. Mm, amen. That's a very different picture of God here now. Yes, it's gone from being this bold storm God to now being delighting delightful. In, no, yeah. delighting, delighting in humanity. In yes, yeah. That's weird. Why is that weird, Jeannie? I don't know. Just there's so many, so many bad things about people. How okay. could he delight in us? I see. That's a, okay. a very simple way to put that. <laughs> so many bad We're, things happen. So many bad us. things, yeah. yeah. That's the grace of God. Yeah. That he, he delights in his creation. He looked over his creation and he said, it's very good. When he took, when he created man, humans, he said, now nah, it's very good. It's tove, tove. Tove, good, tove, good. tove, yeah. Tove, tove. Now I'm going to spin this around. What if we started to read all of these verses that we've just read as what Jesus is saying on the cross? Mm-hmm. I love you, the Lord. You are my strength, you know, um, and then my God is my protection. But, hey, here I am on the cross. The ropes of death entangled me. Floods of destruction swept over me. The grave wrapped its ropes around me. But in my distress, I cry out to the Lord, my God, my Father on the cross. I like it. I've never thought about it like that. I've never thought it messianically, but like I was saying before, sometimes it's not a bad idea to think of things through the lens of Christ. (laughs) And then here, verses 7 to, uh, you know, 15, we could have the moment when Christ is... Yeah, it fits, doesn't it? Where do you say Christ went on those three days? Uh, There's conjecture about it, but... Yeah, there is. uh, It depends on how you interpret writings in Peter about him descending into the lower earthly, or Paul's as he descended into lower earthly regions and uh, preached to those in prison and all that sort of stuff. But uh, he's in the grave, let's just put it that way. And shrouded in darkness. Potentially, yeah. Yeah. Which is what, verse oh, shrouded in darkness, where did we... 14 or something? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, something like that. Psalm 18 is not traditionally classified as a messianic psalm, although elements of it have been interpreted in a messianic context by some readers. This is ChatGPT. Oh, ChatGPT. I just looked GTP. it up. The psalm is primarily a hymn of thanksgiving attributed to David, thanking God for his deliverance from his enemies, portrays God as a mighty warrior and saviour. The text does not specifically point to the coming Messiah in the way that other Psalms do, such as 22, 45, and 110. However, some Christians interpret the language of deliverance and victory as typological, typological seeing in David's experience a foreshadowing of the deliverance that the Messiah understood to be Jesus Christ offers. So while Psalm 18 may not be explicitly messianic, some like other Psalms, it can be considered messianic. Well, that's interesting because GPT has not even picked up on what you've picked up on there, which is they're saying it's the deliverance Christ offers, whereas you're saying it's actually Christ's words as he endures the cross. <gasps> Who do you trust? Oh, the I like what you... The voice of me or I, the voice n- of no, Chat don't GTP? Chat, don't trust Chat GPT. <laughs> what about seeing The voices of many Jesus are clearly more clever than the voice of me. <laughs> what David 
is saying on the cross. But you can't, that's what I like about the Psalms. If you read them in the three ways, David, yourself, and, and Christ, Christ, all three. Yes, that's good. Very different interpretations and a good way to study the Psalm. Well, ChatGPT agrees with you. Oh, wow. Says the idea of Jesus Amazing. echoing the words of David, especially during his crucifixion, adds another layer to the interpretation of Psalm 18 and other Psalms. While Psalm 18 is not directly Cited in the New Testament accounts of Jesus' crucifixion, there are other Psalms, such as Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me, that are directly quoted on the cross. Seeing Jesus in the words of David can be part of a Christological reading of the Old Testament, where events and figures serve as types or foreshadows of Christ. In this view, David's words of suffering, deliverance, and ultimate triumph can be seen as prophetically pointing toward the experiences of Jesus, including his crucifixion and, resu- and resurrection. Oh. But you saw that, and, and I agree, it makes perfect sense. I think the point is we as we as interpreters shouldn't be able to say, we shouldn't say emphatically, oh, that's a messianic psalm because the New Testament hasn't picked up on it and quoted it in that way. Yeah. However, there's well, nothing. I didn't say that. No, you didn't no. say that. That's right. And I, but however, I think there is scope for us to take this meditative literature and apply it in that way. Um uh, without it being exclusively that, totally fine to do that. And uh, what did you say? You said see it through, through see it through David, David or the writer, yeah. and then from ju- from, from ourselves yep, and so Christ. Yes. All three are a good way to meditatively focus on the Psalms. Yeah, agreed. Yeah, and oftentimes when you read the Psalms, you realize the switchings of voices. Yes. Yeah, there can be David clearly writing, and then there's and the, then Messiah, there's the Messiah, and Messiah writing, and then there's the, other times there's there's a, a commentator writing. A commentator, <laughs> yep. and sometimes they say there's the Father God. So it's really. Yep. You've got to really sit and think. Yes, about it's supposed these to be meditative scripture. I think I said this on might have been an episode I've recorded just in the last little while. You know, I go through I go through the Bible every ninety days. So I get through the entire Psalms in one week as I listen to it. Do you um, listen to it on I double speed? To it at double speed, yeah. So um, <laughs> Honestly, I don't yeah, know how you do speed, that. Sometimes one point seven. I like the pauses and the, Yeah, like the, yeah, well there's, you know, there's not much the pausing voices. at double speed. <laughs> now that works for the narrative, but it doesn't work very well for the Psalms because it's supposed to be meditative scripture. You're not supposed to read the Psalms and go, boom. And you're not supposed to do it with any Bible. It's definitely, you should also, I should also be meditating. If I'm never meditating on even narrative scripture, I'm missing something. But even more so with the Psalms. What we're doing now is slowing it right down and looking at it. We're not even going verse by verse, but we're already drawing stuff out of it, which is good for us. Yeah, I, look, I... Absolutely agree with everything that you're saying there. All right, Except well, we're, for listening at two speed, but anyway. <laughs> <laughs> All right. I love here, um, verse 28, you light a lamp for me. The Lord my God lights up my darkness. Mm-hmm. In those moments when we're really sad, that's sometimes it's hard to remember that, I think. Mm-hmm. So it's good to meditate and remember. Yes. Try to, anyway. Yes. In your strength, I can cru- in your strength, Lord God, I can crush an army. With my God, I can scale any wall. So He provides supernatural help. Yeah, it's like once saying. He's got that light, He's meditated on that. God has given Him the strength to. With my God, I can scale a wall. That's pretty powerful. This makes me think of you know when Jesus before Jesus is um, betrayed, and He goes off to pray. Because this is about prayer. He, Gethsemane, you're talking about? Uh, yes. Right. Yep. He's with the disciples yep. there, yeah, right? And he says to them, come and pray with me. And they don't pray with him. And he's distressed to the point of tears or... or um, yeah, it's like he's, um, he's... Well, some scholars think that he's actually bleeding through his pores. Yes, that's what he said. Yes. yes. That's what I said. So he goes off to pray. And every time he, um, he comes back and they're asleep, 
But at the end of that prayer, prayer time, he is strengthened. So imagine him saying him saying this to, to the Lord, to, to his father, you light a lamp for me. You are the light in my darkness. In your strength, I can crush an army. With my God, I can scale any wall. I like it, Jenny. And he's praying that in that moment and he comes out and he's strengthened for to face the betrayal and the horrible days ahead. Beautiful. Let me add to, well, it's another 24, only a few hours, 12, 15 hours or something. Let me add to that. How do you read that? So read that crystal, crystal centrically, like read it as though Jesus is reading it, but then don't go to the point of thinking, well, that's just Jesus. The point of Jesus enduring what he endured is he endured it as a human being. So then we can apply it to our own darkness and go, I can find strength the same way Jesus did, the same way David did. I can find strength. I can get to that point where I feel like I'm despairing, but if I press into God, like David did at Ziklag, strengthen himself in the Lord his God when no one else was around, he can get to that point where he goes, I'm ready to take on the enemy now. I can scale any wall. I can defeat any army. Yeah. Mm. God arms me with strength and he makes my way perfect. Yeah. He makes me as sure-footed as a deer, enabling me to stand on a ma- on mountain heights. Mm. He's obviously seen deers. He has seen deers. On plenty heights. of them. Yeah. Plenty of them in around Engedi. They're everywhere. Yeah. Here's a verse that's hard to read. He trains my hands for battle. He strengthens my arm to draw a bronze bow. What do you make of that? What do I make of it? As in that it's a military analogy? As in, is it saying that God is... Um, violent? Violent, yeah. I think he is using what he knows. He's a military leader living in a time of military battles and who who sees God, he sees protect, God working his protection through him having military defeat over his enemies, military victory over his enemies. So that's his lens. So you have to see it that way. It doesn't automatically mean God's advocating for all humans to attack the enemy with violence. It's, it's culturally the way the, their worldview was at the time. Okay, I'll give you that. <laughs> That's think, a good answer. Yeah. What if as well, if you read it, like he trains my hands for battle uh, in the Christian sense, uh, we put on our armour in our spiritual yeah. sense. Yeah, you could. So that's that's a valid way to do it. The, the battle we face, Paul would say in 2 Corinthians, we, not, we wrestle not against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers. So Paul definitely takes those Old Testament battles, that concept of military stuff, and applies it to prayer, applies it to understanding that we are in a battle with powers and principalities, spiritual dark forces that animate human sin and animate human uh, rebellion against God. And we should be able to see it that way. So you can take these old military things. Jehoshaphat, defeat, you know, praising and defeating the enemy that coming against him. There's definitely an analogy in that, the power of praise to overcome our enemies. Our enemies don't happen to be the Edomites gathering on our borders, although, you know, it could be Hamas coming through or Russia invading Ukraine or whatever. It can be, it can be um, militaristic, but all of those militaristic powers that ally against God's people are still animated by spiritual powers behind them. So God is with us in the moment, this sort of what you're summing up. Yes. What I'm summing up, you're saying there, he is with us, that he, he, yes. Yeah, he will be with you against whatever enemy you're facing. Do you think that's true? I think it has to be true. Um, it's just that it doesn't always look like what we think it does. Hebrews says that he will never leave us nor forsake us. So either that is a, uh, a gross exaggeration or we believe those promise, see that as a promise of scripture. 
there are times when you, when you, when I have felt like God has forsaken me, where I just cannot see a way forward. It feels like it's all crushing down. But it sounds like Psalm 18 and those things that I've experienced in my life in the past that remind me that God was with me and he didn't forsake me. It didn't work out the way I expected, but redemptively I look back and go, you know what, it was hell to go through, but what God did in me and through me was better than what I is did more than if it had worked out the way I would have hoped it was going to work out. And that, that applies to everything I've been through. I can see the redemptive nature of God in it. His ultimate wisdom will enable us to um, prosper more than we could have ever expected in the long run. I suppose the author of that famous poem, Footprints. Footprints was thinking that. Was thinking that. Yeah. That's yep. a good one. That's a good visual. And it's a brilliant visual of it. And the, you know, the, and what's his name? The guy that wrote It Is Well With My Soul. I can't think of his name now. Um, H.B. Spafford. Spafford. He, I, <laughs> I mean, can't he, even imagine saying that. So, yeah, Spaff, yeah, Horatio Spafford. That's his name. He, I mean, he wrote that. You know the story of that? He wrote that after mm-hmm. he had lost his wife and two of his daughters at sea. Oh, the hymn. The hymn. It yeah. is well with my soul. It is well with my when soul. When troubles yeah, like yeah, sea yeah. I know that roll. one. Yes. Yeah. Yes. So he had gone to. Just did not recognize yes, that name Horatio at all. Horatio Spafford. Yeah. So yeah. he had lost his wife who, in a storm at sea, his wife and a couple of his daughters. And I think it was just, uh, I think it was just, no, he'd lost, the, I can't remember who he'd lost now off the top of my head. No, he lost his daughters. Daughters. Not his wife because his wife survived, didn't she? Is that right? I believe he lost his wife oh, okay. too. I was thinking that. Now I'm getting they confused with a lady going, that went to Jerusalem. They were all going, they were going back from to the UK, the UK and they died at that spot yeah. and then he went. Yes, he went there. I think and he may have had another child with he him. He had one other with him, I think, yes. And so he was able to say in the middle of that, it is well with my soul. That's a picture of somebody who you could say, you could say God did not protect him from that trauma, from that deep loss, but he was able to say, even in the midst of this dark time, I found God. I am at peace. I'm at peace. Yeah, and trust God. Yeah. It's that song and psalms like this that I can completely identify with David just flat on the ground yep. weeping yep. Um, because there is such sorrow and heartache in this world and we we need to just sometimes just sit and... Uh, well, that's partly why I w- wanted to do this thing on protection because we think that protection means that will be protected from all pain. I don't think that's what protection means. Jesus says, in this life you will face many Well, what do you think protection means? Protection means that God will will ultimately deliver you through whatever you get. That doesn't mean I don't want to believe and continue to pray for healing from sickness, protected from, you know, hardship. We should pray for those things. But the attitude is must be, protection is like, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego say, our God can protect us from these flames, but even if he doesn't, we still trust him. That is the ultimate thing. Believe for protection in the natural, all the while aware that even if we're not protected in the natural, ultimately we are protected in the eternal perspective on things. Hebrews 11, the honor roll of faith, half of them were protected in the natural, half of them were sawn in two and thrown to lions and burned burned at the stake, and yet God commended them for their faith because they were ultimately protected. Do you think at the end of our lives we 
we'll have that opportunity. Apparently, life's going to flash before our eyes. I don't know whether you read that I or heard that or whatever. I haven't seen that in the Bible, but that's just a... <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. Uh, and we look back and we will see moments like the footprints thing where we say, wow, look what he actually yeah. protected me from. I reckon I there'll be more that we aware. didn't even... We weren't aware of, exactly. I wonder how many of those we won't be aware of where God sent angels in disguise even to protect us, you know. Yeah, I think it's there. It's a mystery. It's not a mystery like Paul's mystery, but it's another mystery. It's a mystery, yep. <laughs> Is that oh. the end of Psalm 18? Is there anything else you want to point out? Um, oh, not really. Well, I could, but, you know, it's a really long clock. Psalm. We're on the clock, yeah. <laughs> All right. Meditate and on it yourself, hey? Yes, meditate on itself. But I do want to note that um, there is – I can still see more nah, – whatever. You can cut that bit out. I'm just rambling now. <laughs> <laughs> I could go on. See, I just like the sound of my own voice. Let's cut it. Let's move on. Okay, we'll move on. We're in 1 Thessalonians 1. And this is a letter written by Paul and Silas and Timothy. Correct. But Paul is the primary writer. Correct, chief. Driver, Chief writer. Yeah. Okay. So they're writing to this church in Thessalonica, which they established how long ago? Uh, I don't think very long ago. Um, this Get the impression this was written within a few, possibly a few weeks, if not a few months after it was written. Really? After they spent time in Thessalonica. Yeah. Okay. I would hope longer than that because they're writing, this is a good church, the church of Thessalonica. Yep. Uh, it seems to be that there's not that many problems in the church, just one or two. Maybe because the church was so young Maybe and hadn't had a point. chance yeah. to experience problems yet. <laughs> yeah. Oh, no, because I thought if it's a few years old, I'm like, wow, they're going really well. They're like tick, tick, tick. No. You know? It's early on. Early on. Oh, dear. All right. Well, miss, throw miss out all plan. my notes. Would you like a little bit of history? Paul went to Thessalonica. Yes. Um, they crossed from Turkey, crossed to Thessalon- went to Philippi, then went to Thessalonica. Planted a church there, got run out of town, just like they had in Philippi after they'd been through prison. The next place they go is Thessalonica. They get run out of town in Thessalonica because the Jews stir up a, a riot against them. Not a riot, like Ephesus riot, but they stir up persecution. So they run out of town. They head to Berea, which is just down the road, um, and they have a good revival at Berea. And then the guys from Thessalonica show up in Berea, and they go, we've got to get you out of here, Paul. So they stick him on a ship and send him to Athens. Paul and Silas, sorry, Timothy and Silas stay behind for a period of time in Thessalonica, not for very long, we think, and then they travel via the Greek mainland down and meet Paul in Athens. So, um, and they scholars think he, he probably spent at most a couple of weeks with this church. Unlike, say, Athens and Corinth, sorry, Corinth and Ephesus, where he spent 18 months to two years, he's had like two weeks with this church. It's a fledgling new church and now he's had to run, be run out of town and he's desperately longing to write back to them and add to what they had already lost. So is that, does that mess with your notes? No, no. It's just <laughs> my next question is funny. I should say um, that all comes from Acts 17. That's out of Acts 17, read that. yes. But if it's true that this church was weeks, maybe months old, mm-hmm. <laughs> this whole letter is about the fact that they were concerned that Jesus had not yet yes, returned. Yes, correct. Exactly. <laughs> so yep. it's, What? They're waiting a couple of weeks. Like, where's Jesus? Why hasn't he come? What? Because they are facing hardship. They're facing hardship. Okay. But they're new Christians. They're new Christians. Jesus is coming soon, as in like two weeks two from weeks now. Two weeks from now. So they, <laughs> if you've only had two weeks with Paul, 
maybe Paul said, it could be as simple as Paul said something about, oh, look, Jesus is going to come back and he hasn't had time to unpack that. And somehow that teaching has infiltrated the church in some way that they're going, well, we thought that it was all going to be over. We didn't think we were going to be suffering this persecution. Well, it seems though from the letter, I would say that Paul did speak a bit to them he, about it. He refers it. back to it. He he's refers, yes. Which is, I've heard a preacher say this years ago. He had two weeks with them and he's obviously spent quite a bit of time talking to them about Christ's return. And now he's having to write back to them and say, remember I was with you and I told you that this was going to happen. But he's what? having to clarify. <laughs> so why do you think he spoke a lot about Christ's return? Just um, simply because they were under persecution? Maybe. Maybe. That, see, it is very prevalent to the New Testament church. Even the Apostle Paul himself assumed that he would be alive when Christ returned. Um, he says that. In, I think it's Corinthians. He says, 1 Corinthians 15, we who are still alive will come up, be caught up to meet him in the air. No, that's not. That's in this. That's in first, That's in Thessalonians somewhere. It's in Thessalonians. Yeah, we who are still alive. So but he, doesn't he actually write, I know that there's terrors and troubles ahead of me, and he was expecting death. One of his letters to Timothy, he's expecting to die. That's later on. Oh, okay. That's, that's he's writing that later on after this. Um, okay. Yes. I'll so give you that. maybe as time went on, he started <laughs> to realize, oh, maybe this isn't going to happen as soon as it was. But but they live with this imminence, this sense of imminence. But the destruction of the temple had not yet happened. No, that's right. Wow. So they're quite jumpy, like thinking, oh, it's going to be coming now. The second coming's now. But really, this sometimes got to pass. Yeah. Well, we now know two thousand years has passed. But they, Paul is trying to help them as time goes on to look forward to the ultimate victory and not worry about when that will be. Know that in the end, I don't think, if you had to ask Paul, hey, do you think that it's going to be 2,000 years? He would have gone, he would have likely gone, no way, because he lived with some sense of imminence because they looked around the world and said, this is so dark. This is, you know, how could this possibly endure? I hear Christians say the same thing today. <laughs> you know, oh, it's dark. I go, yeah, but you weren't living in the Roman Empire in the you first century. Yeah. It's pretty dark then too. So I think that's okay. It's healthy to have a sense of Christ come, imminence. And immediacy in, in their faith. It's yes. what he's, ex- he's expressing to lo- um, during this letter. We'll get to it. Yes. Uh, to live your life today, you know, work hard today. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Which is really the pattern for all Christians throughout all of time. Live, you heard it summed down to live as though Christ is going to return today and live as though he's not going to come back f- for generations because we have to have that long-term approach, but we also need to live with that sense of, I need to be ready. Yeah, uh, yeah but also we have a responsibility to today, to love to, one another to today, well today, to have a relationship yep. with Christ today, yep. to pray today, See, which, not which tomorrow. Which bothers me when I already am seeing this in some aspects of Christianity, like four days into an Hamas attack in Israel, and people, Christians seem suddenly more obsessed with end times stuff. And I'm going, but we have innocence on both sides of this situation and you're more worried about predicting the end time Christ. What about dealing with today? What what can we pray about to protect innocent civilians today? That's where, that's where our mandate as Christians should be, not just ignoring all that for some kind of divine sense of the end times. That's, that's the point Paul would say. To, I think Paul would say that to us. I, th- I think he would say that too. And what you're referring to there, I think that when People hear of th- um, things in Israel, particularly evangelical. Particularly Israel. Cr- yeah, well, yes, Israel. Evangelicals uh, get a little rattled because of the book of Revelation. That's right. And our understanding or misunderstanding and all sorts of stuff. But certainly when Jesus says, look for, be aware of your time and seasons, everybody looks at Israel and, you know, suddenly yeah. ears are open. And It's a uh, poor understanding of what Jesus is teaching. But we'll deal with that next year when we talk about the book of Revelation. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, in this book here, uh, we 
this is, would you say the theme of this letter is the coming of the Lord? Yes, yes. First and second Thessalonians. So there's a lot of talk about the coming of the Lord, mm-hmm. which sparks the end times. Mm-hmm. It gets us thinking about that. Okay. We load up all this left behind theology, which is not what they're talking about at this time. No, they're not. Left behind being the book. The book you're, left you're behind. and to, yeah. It's called a dispensational th- End time theology. Yeah. It's a type what, of theology. Why did we have to do this chapter this week? <laughs> Honestly, this is just my bad luck. Stay tuned, folks. Stay we'll tuned. talk about it in more depth later. We won't be able to deal with it in that depth today. <laughs> so this is Paul's, this could be Paul's first letter. Yes, it could be. Apologies if you can hear noise outside. It sounds like sounds like a whole lot of motorbikes going outside. Hey, he writes uh, letters to seven churches. Are they the churches in Revelation? Who writes letters to seven Paul. churches? No, different churches. Different churches. Oh, okay, scrap that off. Uh, yeah. End times people. The only church, Ephesus, is in the seven times. Seven, yeah. Laodicea. Oh, Laodicea. Yeah, yeah. Is, if I think about it, I, I don't can think Colossae is, but Laodicea is, which is probably what the book of Ephesians is. So yeah, there's a couple, but not many. Okay, but this is the book, the idea of the rapture. Yes or no? Quickly. This is where, yes, this is where the one of the main themes for the rapture theology comes out of. Uh, Thessalonians, yes. Okay, we'll get to that. Yep. <laughs> so this epistle is actually full of doctrine, but there's actually no reproof or correction for the people. Correct. There's just a few exhortations, it's I suppose. more supposed to be exhortation. That's exactly what it is. Keep going, right. guys. It's okay. Yes, uh, but there's no blame, only praise for the faith and the hope and the love of the believers. So it's a, essentially a very positive letter. Yes. And an encouraging letter uh, to believe and hang on to the faith that God, that Christ is coming soon. Because your lives are so bad right now, mm. you're under persecution, um, hang on for the good good times at the end. Correct. Hang on for the good times. Verse 6, so you receive the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering that it brought you. So there you go. This is the framework in one verse. Okay. That was a verse 1. Verse 1. Chapter 1, verse 6. It yeah, shows I should have just read that. <laughs> that's exactly what we're talking about. They, were, they became Christians under sufferance of persecution. And... Yes, verse 3, we pray to our Father and God about you because we think of your faithful work, your loving deeds and the enduring hope you have, of course, for our Lord Jesus Christ. If this church is only a few weeks old, this isn't in, this is, it's there's a, not much endurance here. No, but he's he's commending them for Commend, yes. some level of, you know, it would have been easy for them to make this switch, but they did and he wants them to know that. You guys have converted to Christ under very difficult circumstances. Good on you. Yeah, and we view it so differently because we are not under the persecution like this. And so I can laugh and go, oh, they've only a few weeks Christians. But that few weeks could have been like Mm. hell for them, really. Yes, exactly. Exactly right. And some of them may probably have died. Some of their family members have probably died from persecution in these few weeks. That puts yeah. a whole different pers- – I think that, we're going to come across to. that. It's alluded yes. to, isn't yeah. it? I think, yes. Yeah. So we know, dear brothers and sisters, in verse 4, that God loves you and has chosen you to be his people. For when we brought you the good news, it was not only with words but also with power. For the Holy Spirit gave you full assurance that what we said was true. So they heard the message and they believed it. And you know of our concern for you from the way we lived when we were with you. So you received the message with joy from the Holy Spirit in spite of the severe suffering it brought you. In this way, you imitated both us and the Lord. It's a lot of suffering yes, going on. And as a, res- yeah, as a result of standing firm and believing, you have been an example to all the believers. And now the word of the Lord is ringing out from you to people everywhere. Are they becoming missionaries in the- or is it just uh, that I think they it's have- the testimony of their endurance, which is spreading. 
So I think that's what he's saying. Paul probably has that in mind. He's hearing this report back. He's he's heard from Timothy and Silas about their endurance over these weeks or months, and that word's getting out. And how they turned away from idols in mm. verse 9 to serve the living and true God. So there would have been a very visual shift here, you yep. think? Yes, yeah, tangible in many ways. Okay. Yep. And uh, they speak, the Macedonians were speaking about how they're looking forward to the coming of God's Son from heaven. Jesus, whom God raised from the dead, he is the one who has rescued us from the terrors of the coming judgment. What's the terrors of the coming judgment? Well, they would have thought it's probably what they're going through right now. Yeah. (laughs) Um, They would have seen it in that context. What Paul was thinking about, I think, would have probably been ultimately the vindication, the final overthrow of the forces of darkness at the second coming of Christ when Jesus returns. I think that would have been the context he was talking about. Um, and saying he uh, is the one who will ultimately rescue us. Now, the those that believe in the rapture theory, which I used to believe in, don't anymore, um, they would say that that's a prophetic declaration that he's going to rescue you, he's going to take you out of, he's going to res- rapture you before God brings the final judgment. I don't think that's what it's saying anymore. I think it's just saying you're going to go through hard times, um, but ultimately you're not going to, you might have to walk through judgment, you might have to walk through the outworking of judgment against sin, but you will ultimately be rescued. Even if that's through martyrdom, you'll be rescued. It's not a pretty picture, is it? <laughs> no, but once again, we're talking about it in light of, you know, an atrocity in the world and, you know, yes, it's Israel and Gaza and makes a, obviously hits the world stage as did Russia and Ukraine and the things there. But this stuff happens in African countries every day. Yes, it does. It doesn't hit the news. No. So this is the atrocities of living in a wicked world, you know. It also happens in homes. Happens in, in homes. And we don't hear much, we don't hear much hear any that's, about that. That's right. And we know right. that um, women are assaulted and abused totally. and murdered across Australia, yep. I think, what, once a week. And that just yeah. shows you the this is the outworking of um, what God is coming to put right. Ultimately, the promise is he will right all those wrongs. So it's an encouraging letter. Yes, That's absolutely. what he's doing. Encouraging, stay true. I like here in verses 4 to 10, you can almost sum up the whole entire Christian life here. Verse 4, there's like the the hearing, you know, or yep. the, um, hang on. God loves you and has chosen you to be his people. Yes. The, oh, the, um, the idea of the consummation, I suppose, like before, before time he has chosen oh, yes. you. Okay, so God has already known you. Yep. And then you hear it. Yep. And then you become a follower. Yep. Um, following the pattern. Following yep. a pattern, which... Um, is also evidence of like a true conversion. And then you live your life as an example to your fellow Christians. You, then you boldly preach the word and then God separates us from evil. And then verse 10, we return to the Father. Yeah, that's a really good pattern. Yeah. Did you come up with that? I read that. You read that. Yeah. yeah that's a good analogy. That's a good commentary. Well, I read and, and worked it out. Worked yeah, it I can, out. I've not seen that before, but that's a, that's a good way to evaluate the process of the Christian life. And I would say that that pattern is kind of repeated in our lives. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're constantly revisiting that kind of pattern, coming back to the the, the Christ renewal of Christ, in Christ and then working through that pattern. That's a good, good way to put it. Rewind that, folks, and listen to that. That's that's a, a good explanation of what the Christian life looks like. I was just going to joke and go, but rewind. Oh, dear. You just don't do that anymore. You just press back 30 seconds (laughs) on my watch. (laughs) Verse 5, for our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit. What does that mean? It means miracles. It means when Paul showed up in town, 
He is doing stuff. He, God is, you know, what Acts says, the, the Spirit went, the Holy Spirit confirmed the word with signs and miracles following. So power is miracles. Is the Holy Spirit, uh, is this the Holy Spirit visiting and coming like Pentecost? Uh, yeah, to some degree. It's the outworking of miracles in in there um, as they as they work out. Um, they come and preach and they heal people and that sort of stuff. That's what's what they're referring to, the Holy Spirit working through supernatural signs. So that's just a part of it. Yes. Because some people say, oh, the Holy Spirit doesn't do anything in my life, but it, it, there should be movement, yes. right? Yep. We should see the Holy we Spirit. We should see the Holy Spirit working. There should be a supernatural component. And is it the Holy Spirit that's able to give us joy when we're under persecution? It's not something we have to try and attain for ourselves? I think yeah, that's a good way to put it. Um they will require us to tune into God and allow his strength and joy and fruit to manifest through His through the Spirit. Um, but, yes, it is, I think, those things, the ability to endure suffering, we can tap into a source, supernatural source to do that that is beyond um, the natural human ability to do so. The psalm we read before, Psalm 18, do you think there was joy in that? In the psalm? Yeah. Yeah. You see, you see that multiple times as David's proclaiming his what God has done in him and strengthening him. There's a joy to it, isn't there? I feel quite triumphant. The Lord lives. Blessed be God, the rock, my saviour. That sounds, that sounds like joy to me. So out of the persecution, the Holy Spirit moved, enabling David to feel joy and write, the Lord is my yeah. rock. Yeah. So much to learn. Yeah. So, I like it. You like- I like the fact that we can do that. We can reflect on God. Because, you know, I read as well, God doesn't describe the Lord as the Lord of joy, God of joy, mm-hmm. God of peace, not the God of joy. David doesn't describe him that No, way. no, just in the Bible. He's not the God of joy, but we'll describe him as the God of love, the God of peace, the God of hope, but not joy. Well, Paul will say in Acts, right where we're at, we're talking about Acts, um, where is it, when he's in 16, when he's in Athens, is it? No, it must be Acts 17, when he's in Athens. You'll say the kingdom of, is that where it is? It says the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but righteousness, peace, and joy in the Holy Spirit. So Paul will describe it that way. No, but God, not oh God descri- described God described as God of love, God of peace, but he's not as the God of joy. I've written that somewhere else in my notes because I just thought that was a strange thing. I've never thought God I'll have of to joy mark that as well and because study that. that. I would be surprised. <laughs> Maybe but he I'd be can incredibly be the God surprised. Of peace. I would be incredibly surprised if God was not described as the God of joy somewhere, because joy is such a deeply rooted part of Jewish culture. Wine is a symbol of joy, so I would be very surprised if he's if even if it's not word for word, it may not be word for word, but I think. Jewish worship practices, Jewish culture, religious practice was deeply entrenched in joy. So, yeah, I'm in, I'm intrigued by that. I had it written down somewhere. You had but it written I, down. I was meant to bring it up in a different chapter, so I don't know why. Okay, well maybe it. we'll come. Maybe it'll come up in a different one. chapter. Is God ever described as the God of joy? Is that the question you want to ask? Yeah. In the Bible, let's see if ChatGPT can find it. The Bible does not explicitly describe the God as God of joy, but numerous passages attribute to joy to God by, uh, or describe joy as a divine gift to humans. For instance, the fruit of the Spirit. Uh, the Psalms are frequently associated with joy in His presence. 
the concept of joy is often linked to the nature of God and the experience of knowing God. So pretty much what I said, but there you go. It's not explicitly describing God as the God of joy. You're saying Bible says God is the God of peace or God is the God of hope. Yes. God is the God of love, but God is not the God of joy. Yeah, I think that's probably right, but I think I wouldn't read too much into it because I think it's deeply entrenched in Jewish culture. Uh, because here I have it here, and I've actually got it from 1 Thessalonians 5. Okay. So we'll probably we'll come get back to, to it, it. Then. But it, um, I've, I've got it noting here that God is called the God of peace in verse 23 of that chapter, not the God of joy, because peace is actually deeper than joy. Right. And it's it's more perfect than joy can be. Like peace can be unmoved. Joy can be moved. Joy can yeah. be removed yeah. in a moment. But if you have a, uh, a peace from God, it can't be changed. Yes, because that's shalom, yeah. which is all-encompassing. Um, shalom is all in, it's, it's this deep sense of inner peace and order despite the disorder around you. That's shalom. Yeah, so I think that's a good analogy. I, I do think I've heard – Maybe this is just Christianese, but Christians say, you know, joy is not happiness. Joy is deeper than happiness in that you can have joy despite – you can be in grief and still have joy. Um, I wonder if that's just Christians trying to uh, – I have to go back and do some study on what the word joy means because I think – I have always thought of joy as something deeper than just circumstantial happiness. I can have yes, joy I agree with as you. linked to hope. It's linked to peace. It's linked to something that's deeper within me. But I wonder if that's just – us overlaying our theology on the scriptures. But I suppose in, in this context, when they're writing saying, uh, they're going to ask, what's happened to our what's dead people? To our dead Paul can't memories. write to them and say, be joyous, mm. but he can write and say, may the God of peace be with yes. you. Because what they need in that moment yeah, is peace. It's peace. It's they don't need happiness. Joy. Yes, that's yeah. right. Yeah, that's what I mean by I'd have to do some study into what the actual meaning of joy is. If I can understand joy is deeper, then yes, you can still have joy even though you've lost your loved ones because ultimately Paul's saying you're going to see them again. There's a joy in that. But we could take that too far and not allow people space to grieve. and That would be callous and that would be unhealthy. So I think peace is a more effective promise in the midst of deep loss than joy is. Oh, yes. don't worry. You're going to see your loved one no. again. Be happy. I mean, that's yeah. not going to help anybody. But God being with you and giving you peace in the midst of it, shalom in the midst of it, that is hope-filled. Yeah, and I have read stories when people have been in their darkest days that they have felt a strange peace yes. from God. Yeah. Oh, definitely. I, and I've witnessed it with people on, you know, on their deathbeds over years of pastoral ministry and close to death, and there is a there is a peace that, comes upon them at that point. On that note, let's go to Psalm, what is it? The next one. <laughs> the next one. We'll get there. We'll see you in a minute. Speaking of joy, here we are in Psalm We're in, 32. Yeah, it's, it's joy here, doesn't it? And joy. Psalm 32, folks. 32, I yeah. I was talking over Jeannie. <laughs> Joy is described as sort of being the joy of forgiveness. Yes, it is. It isn't. We're forgiveness from his sin. Uh, yeah. And blessed is the man whose sins are forgiven. From that we can have joy. Yes. That, well, that's a good reason to have joy, isn't it? Well, one would hope. You would hope so. The fact that we are forgiven and, and relieved and delivered from our sin. So Psalm 32 is a Psalm of David. Mm -hmm. It's called a contemplation. Right? It's a contemplation that looks good. Yeah, meaning it's it's giving instruction. Once again, it's meditative. Meditative. Yep. 
There are only 13 psalms that are meditative like that. They're called mashil psalms. Mashil. Mashil or whatever. Mashil. maybe. I don't know. (laughs) Yes, that's right. And in this one here, um, when I said before, you um, you can have different voices in a psalm. Mm -hmm. This one does. Yeah, it does actually. Yeah, you're right. David speaking, the Holy Spirit speaking. Yeah, that's true. You have the Messiah speaking and then the Father God speaking. Mm, It's true. I see that now that you say it. So you don't get that when you're reading through, when you're listening to Psalm 32 at double speed. It's no, bang, it's all over and done with in like 15 <laughs> seconds. Yeah, honestly, don't know how. You, you miss the drama. Yeah, you, miss, the, you do miss a lot yeah. of the drama, I have to admit. It takes a special kind of brain to be able to do that. Uh, it's, yes, yeah. I have a special brain. It's not necessarily <laughs> special the way. It's just different and strange. So when I was reading this, I, I noted there were different voices. Yes, there you go, because you did it meditatively. Yeah, not as meditative as I should have. But I've gone back and I see, I've got him in my notes, that verses 1, 2, 10, and 11, the Spirit speaks. Mm-hmm. Verses 3 to 7, it's the sinner. Yep. Uh, 8 and 9 can be called the Messiah. Yep, that makes sense to me. Yeah, okay. Yep, great. So here, verse 1, um, we have the Spirit speaking. I think. Oh, what joy for those who dis- whose disobedience is forgiven, whose sin is put out of sight. Yes, what joy for those whose record the Lord has cleared of guilt, whose lives are lived in complete honesty. Do we have any idea when this psalm was written? Uh, no, no. It just We just know it's of David. So you, you could probably apply this to any context. It would fit with psalm, alongside Psalm 51, but Psalm 51 specifically says David wrote that psalm um, in the context of the situation with David and Bathsheba um, or Uriah, that oh, situation. But yeah. there's no reference to that here. But yet it's a very similar kind of psalm to Psalm 51 in mm. that sense of forgiveness. Yeah, so it could describe the that restlessness he felt yes. during Bathsheba. Yeah, well, you're going to see he talks about his body wasting away and all kinds of stuff. But I, I suspect it's multifaceted. Like you said, there's probably plenty of times, well, I know there's plenty of times there in are. my life where I have to go back to psalms like this too. Oh, here I am again, Lord, I've sinned, forgive me. And these sorts of psalms are um, encouraging in those times. And there's lots of times this psalm we could think could be applied to. Like there are lots of times in David's life that we think this psalm could be written in. Yes, that's right. It does a lot of... uh, Repenting. A lot of... Sinning and repenting. (laughs) Yes, that's right. I mean, it could be written written in Ziklag. It could be written after he turns back to God after all these times of wandering. It could Mm. be that multiple times. It could be the situation with Absalom... It's so many times in his life and in ours where it applies. Verse 3, here's the voice of the sinner. When I refused to confess my sin, my body wasted away and I groaned all day long. Day and night your hand of discipline was heavy on me. My strength evaporated like water in the summer heat. This sounds like a Holy Spirit convictor. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? It's a very metaphorical, deep way of the anguish of, oh, God, I can't believe I've done this. I feel, you know, that whole... I'm a sinner, I'm worthless, I can't believe I did this. Like you can't run from your sin. No. Eventually it catches Catches up with you. you. And the more you run from it, the more it burdens you. Mm. Is that what this is saying? I think so, yeah. And if you haven't experienced that, you're probably not in touch enough with your own humanity because there are times when we go, you know, I can't believe I, I said, you know, I lost it and I... You know, I lost it with my kids or I lost it with my wife or I lost it with my husband or I, you know, I watched that thing I shouldn't have done. I did that thing, you know, whatever, whatever, pick, pick your sin of choice. There is going to be times where we fall and we can identify with this. And if we're not identifying with this, then we're not aware of our own sin enough. I wonder how a person feels when 
They spend their entire life refusing to acknowledge some hurt that they've done or some sin. What? How does that pile up on us? Uh, I think the Bible would say it will pile up for a time until our conscience is seared and then we become unaware of it, like Pharaoh seemed unaware of it. Or, you know, think of maybe a slave driver or a gang leader who, you know, probably started as some broken young kid but eventually gets to the point where they're just completely unaware of the effect and they're just so consumed in their own selfishness. I think that's the pattern. But I don't think any human being goes from straight to that point. I think there's a conscience that needs to be seared over time for that to happen. And woe that we would not do that, but that we would be quick to repent and seek forgiveness when we miss it, when we sin, when we miss the mark. So when we as Christians, we acknowledge sin, are we effectively stopping ourselves from becoming conditioned to the sin to becoming, what did you say, seared? Seared is the biblical term, like like with seared with a hot iron. So when we confess, even though it's a hard thing to do, are you saying it's better for us to confess even though it's so hard? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Definitely, Jeannie. <laughs> no, I asked that in a funny way. I know but you do. I'm just trying to make a point because there's some people who prefer to not confess their sins because they're so full of shame and regret and self-loathing about things they may or have done or have happened to them. The act of confessing seems so much harder than living under the burden of the pain. Yeah. What brings us to that point of being able to confess? What brings us to that point of able to acknowledge that? That's a great question. By acknowledging our our sin, it will it will actually be lightened. Does that make sense? It does. And as pastorally, it's a really good question because um, I've encountered that many times. Like you said, people shame preventing them from feeling uh, able to confess. I think uh, as a pastor, as a, Christ, a fellow Christian, safety is really important. That first word that came to my mind was safety. People need to feel that the confession of their sin will not be unsafe. Uh, so, you know, I have, you know, pastored many, many men that are dealing with sexual sin and, and dysfunction in their world. And the church hasn't always done a, a really good job of creating safety for men to talk about that. And in the process, it just keeps it in the dark and people feel worse. And then ultimately they give up or they just carry on in their sexual sin or whatever it might be. And it doesn't have to be sexual sin. It can be any area of trauma um, or, or sin. We as Christians need to create safety for people to be able to express their pain, their trauma, their hurt, their sin, so that they can receive forgiveness and healing. And to the degree that we do that or not do that, the degree we don't do that, we are failing in our mandate as the church because the church should be a safe place. And only through that expression of sin can we truly have um, healing and be able to go go forward to a place of wholeness, I suppose. It was a very long-winded answer. But. <laughs> Is this one of the reasons why the church makes so much effort to emphasise that God is a God of shelter and love versus a God of judgement? Yeah, 
a right. God, a, a safe God that you can come and confess, that you can be yourself, you can... Um, well, don't we see that in Jesus? I mean, a friend of tax collectors and sinners, um, a man who would be, he was okay and in fact commended a, a, a sinful, quote unquote, woman who would come and what, you know, pour out an alabaster jar at his feet and have the religious people look down on it. And yet Jesus says, she can come. I think the fact that Jesus, he shows us how the church should be. The church should not be distant from sinners, but we should be a safe place for sinners to come and find forgiveness and wholeness. I'm smiling. I don't really, <laughs> that's exactly the truth. It is the truth. Yep. And it's a shame that um, even though we obviously do preach Christ and there is the, the idea that Christ, the truth that Christ loves everyone and accepts everybody, yet there is also that side of the judging God as well. Yes, people run from. We're afraid of being judged. We're afraid of being judged, but I think more often than not, we're probably most people are probably not afraid of being judged by God. I think they're probably afraid of being judged by the church, being judged by Christians. I wonder if that is often what keeps people from. That's what you can speak out of out of being a pastor. I can say you've seen that. Yes, we have to create space for people to feel safe to come and not be fear of reprisal because that's what Jesus did, and that's what the religious people. rebuked him for. So we, we, if we're going to be followers of Jesus, people can come broken and full of sin and find safety to, to yes, confess and repent, but then find a place to be healed. That is, that is what we should be about. And it's once, not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick, Jesus said. <laughs> and once they realize that and they're in community of a church, they'll pretty quickly realize that uh, everyone here is. That's right. We're not as all together as <laughs> we think we are. We're not as all together. We all That's have right. our problems. We all have our previous transgressions. Correct. And our ongoing ones. <laughs> and our ongoing <laughs> exactly. ones. Exactly. Yeah. Not to, not to dismiss it. I know I'll hear people saying, oh, yeah, Rowan, you're just dismissing sin. I'm not dismissing it. I'm just saying that we go so far to, to the judgmental side, the critical side of sin, that we don't allow people um, safety to feel like they can confess. I wonder if David felt that at times because here he is describing when he's he's refusing to confess, mm-hmm. you know, his body's wasting away. There's a, a heavy burden and a load on him. His strength's evaporating. But then he says, finally, I confessed all my sins to you and I stopped trying to hide my guilt and I said to myself, I will confess my rebellion to the Lord and you forgave me. All my guilt is gone. You forgave me. All my guilt is gone. That sounds instantaneous. Yeah, it is, isn't it? What do you make out of that? Well, that was a statement. It sounds instantaneous. It has to be instantaneous. It's a revelation moment. A revelation moment, yes. It's the, that's why it fits with Psalm 51, creating me a clean heart. Then I will cheat transgresses your ways. It's like this instant revelation of I've been washed clean. And that comes through this travail and repentance and getting to that point of awareness that go, God has taken my sin as far as the east is from the west. Wow, I am clean. I, he has forg- yet he forgave me. All my guilt is gone. That's a moment. That's a moment of revelation of what God has done. All my guilt is gone. All my shame has gone, yeah. and his body is no longer wasting away. His yep. groaning has stopped. Yep. What a beautiful picture of why live under that pressure to not repent when you can experience the freedom of forgiveness. 
Yeah, and when he has felt this freedom of forgiveness and this change within him and the love and the joy from God above, he then says, therefore let all the godly pray to you while there's still time, in verse 6, that they may not uh, drown in the floodwaters of judgment. He's drowning in the floodwaters before he confesses in this time, but he's also speaking towards the end times here, right? Uh, yeah, uh, yeah. Okay, I can see that. I'm, I'm thinking more that he's saying, now that I've got this revelation, I'm going to write it into. I'm going to write another verse to this psalm that says, <laughs> "I want you guys to experience what I've experienced." So he moves into teaching mode. Teaching mode because it is an instructional psalm. It is an instructional psalm. It's actually yeah. not. It's it's basically exactly the same as. Um, verse in Psalm 51, don't keep looking at my sins, remove the stain of my guilt, create in me a clean heart, renew a light, right spirit in me, do not banish me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit, restore, restore to the joy of me the joy of salvation, make me willing to obey you, then I will teach your ways to rebels and they will return to you. So once we get this forgiveness, we get this cleanness, then we start thinking not just about ourselves, but I want other people to experience this too. So there's so much similarity between 32 and 51. And after he has, um, he's experienced this, this joy and this forgiveness, he then has a relationship with God. Yeah. It says in verse 8, the Lord says, I will guide you along the best pathway for your life. So instant forgiveness, instant relationship. Yep, instant relationship and instant uh, renewal of direction, instant sense of somewhere to go, something to do. My life's worth something now. Yeah, yeah, I will advise you and watch over you. I'm with you. So we go thinking back on Psalm mm. 18. He is my rock. He yep. is my shield. All those things. And verse 9, do not be like a senseless horse or mule that needs a bit and bridle to keep it under control. <laughs> That's a very vivid uh, perspective on what he's saying. Yeah, he's using what he knows around yeah, the time. He, yeah, and he's, and he's probably thinking, that's what I was. All that time I was refusing to sit, to repent. I was just crazy. I was stuck in my, with a bit and bridle of judgment in my mouth. So God is removing the bit and bridle, right? Yeah. And so if this verse sort of says to me, don't be senseless, it's like learn my ways. Is God saying this? Learn my ways, meditate on my law, and therefore you don't need a bit and bridle. You don't need a bit and bridle because you'll you'll experience true freedom. You can run the way a horse or a mule is supposed to run and experience full freedom. So while he, he was living in that shame and that unrepentant heart, Am I meant to think that God was keeping him under a bit and bridle at that point? I think so. Keeping him within the realms of not going too far from God or... Yeah, maybe so. Or maybe just that sense of overwhelming judgment that he was under, that conviction, that pain, that anguish of body in itself was like a bit and bridle. It was keeping him trapped. I think it's supposed to be more... I know bit and bridle can be thought of as direction, but I I think in this context I'm reading it more as um, constriction, rather than, you know, I'm just direct, we use a bit and bridle to send a horse in one direction. But I think if you put yourself as the horse, you don't want a bit and bridle, you want to be free. Yeah. So I think he's saying, I felt like I was under the constriction of God, but now I'm in a place of freedom because I have repented and experienced forgiveness. Freedom in relationship with God, that's what you're saying. Yeah. Okay. And verse 10, many sorrows come to the wicked, but unfailing love surrounds those who trust the Lord. So rejoice in the Lord. Here's the coming joy. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, all you who obey him. Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. Hearts are pure when they are forgiven. Yes. Is what he's saying? Yeah, that's right. Not doesn't mean we're always 100% pure. It's this sense of purity and cleanliness that we get when we repent. 
once again, sit down with Psalm 32 and Psalm, Psalm 51 side by side and read them. You'll see that they're saying the same thing two different ways. So while we we're under this sin um, and we were and my, his body was wasting away and he was in this pain and this stress and worry and grief, the contrition is what brings joy. The contrition is the process to experience forgiveness and it's the forgiveness that brings joy. But yes, you won't get forgiveness there. without contrition. Yeah. Uh, the sacrifices of God, it says in Psalm 51, are a broken heart, you a love contrite heart. Yeah. I do, but it's the same thing. Yes, if you're going to experience what God needs, you wouldn't. You want it, you know, if it was sacrifices, I'd bring them, he says, but, you know, the sacrifices you're looking for are a broken spirit, a contrite heart you will not despise. That then leads to forgiveness. Forgiveness brings back the restoration of joy. I'm so glad you said that about the forgiveness uh, the sacrifices, rather, because there's no mention of sacrifices here. Not 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 in this psalm at all. You see that? Yeah, yeah, yeah no. You know, right. We spent so much time talking about the temple and yeah, atonement, yeah. and but here, there's no sacrifice. Yep. There's no need to go before the temple. It seems he has a one-way communication with God. Yeah, he doesn't great. need to sacrifice a pair of doves or whatever. No, I wonder to if he receive forgiveness. So this could be built on the back of Psalm 51. Like I can just see David sitting in his sitting before the tabernacle, in you know, with the tabernacle, you know, the the ark right in front of him with his open heaven yeah, and just coming before God without need of sacrifice and just this realisation that what you're looking for, Lord, is my broken spirit and I'm repentant and experiencing the complete forgiveness of God, what joy that brings. And he doesn't need a priest to, t- to tell no. him he's forgiven. No. He knows it. That sort of implies to me that there's a feeling when he confesses. There's yeah. some kind of inner feeling. We, if we're honest, we can experience that. That's yes. a beautiful thing. And that's... Partly why I've talked about this on other podcasts about the tabernacle of David and what it means that, that God will restore the tabernacle of David. And some scholars think, is that with you, Jenny? I've talked yeah, about that. Yeah, yeah, we've talked about that. Yeah, so that's... <laughs> among that's, other things. Among other things. So that's this concept of they look at this and go, there's something about what David's experiencing here, which is foreshadowing the ultimate. We don't need to, a priest to intercede. Jesus is our high priest. We, we are able to come straight to God. We can come boldly into his presence. Hebrews 4. All of that is what David is experiencing here as he just experiences the joy of forgiveness through contrition and repentance. One other thing I noticed in this, I just wanted to ask you what your thoughts were. In verse 6, Therefore let all the godly pray to you while there is still time that they may not drown in the floodwaters of judgment. It just reminds me of Noah. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah. Noah was protected. He was godly. Yep. And here he is floating around and yep. the rest are drowning in judgment. Yeah, there's almost like a Noah but reference there. No, See, David always points you back always or forwards back. Yep. or all sorts of stuff. Yeah, well, floodwaters is very much a sign of judgment from the Noah account, but all through history, back to Genesis, the floodwaters, the whole sea is a place of chaos, a place where God isn't. So that's deeply entrenched in their psyche and uh, becomes this, this picture of uh, the judgment of God. One more question. Mm-hmm. Okay, in verse 11, uh, the NLT says, Shout for joy, all you whose hearts are pure. In mm-hmm. the King James Version, it said, Those who are upright in heart. What does it mean to be upright in heart? I'm just going to take a stab here at God is looking for hearts that are devoted to Him. Not saying we need to be perfect, we won't be because we still have a sinful nature. But he's looking for people whose hearts are devoted, saying, God, I want my life to reflect you, honour you. 
Second Chronicles somewhere <laughs> says, the eyes of the Lord range to and fro throughout the earth that he may strongly support those whose hearts are completely devoted to him. So I think a pure heart is a heart that says, gets up in the morning and go, God, I want my life to honor you today. I think that's what God's looking for. I want I want the, David will say elsewhere in the Psalms, may the, the thoughts of my mind, the meditations of my heart be acceptable in your sight. I think that's what pure heart is, an upright heart. Could it also be described as a heart that acknowledges that it needs forgiveness? Yeah. So I remember that one of the things that Dr. Ken Chance said many years ago in Bible college, go back 30 plus years ago, he said, you know, we talk about saints, the saints being these pure people. He said, he said, historically, one of the true marks of sainthood has always been their deep awareness of their sinfulness. <laughs> it's, it's almost like a, a, a contradiction that a mark of true pureness of heart is an acknowledgement of our sinfulness of our heart. So we don't fall into self-righteousness. We constantly remind God, I need you to help me overcome my sinful heart. I think that's a partly a pure heart. Does that fit with what you were saying? I think, yeah. Yeah. How many characters in the Bible are there like that? That are pure heart? Uh, all the time or just some well, of the time? I was just wondering. I mean, because David here is an David example is of here. that. Um, I think there's, there's numbers that would do that. I think to say that there are certain characters that are pursued as nearly, uh, portrayed as nearly always holy, there's only really a couple of those. Probably Joseph and Daniel, significantly, dreamers. Um, but most in most scriptures we see the complexity of human behavior. Abraham, David, um, Paul. I'm going to miss heaps out here, but I think they, there are characters like that. We see the complexity of the brokenness, but also this desire to want to honor God with their lives. That's what it's about, isn't it? As Christians, that's how we should live. Yeah. Yep. Is that what you're saying? Yep. yep. Even Jacob, who just is deeply riddled with character flaws, um, still in his own broken way, wanted to honor God. And so God worked with him. Despite, I mean, he's one of the most screwed up characters in the Bible and he's, he becomes the Just, father of Israel. There are many, yeah. <laughs> you know, and yet God still worked with him. So there was something about him that still pursued God despite how riddled with character flaws that man was. So no matter how shamed I feel, no matter how broken, broken I traumatized, am, you name it. I can still come to God? Yeah. Yeah, great. All right. Okay, I feel preach good about it, that. Jeannie. I feel good. <laughs> Let's move on. That's the sermon right there. Remember that one. We'll get you to preach that at some point. Okay, we're moving on now. Where are we going? Back to the second uh, one Thessalonians two. Yep. Here we are, one Thessalonians two, and in this chapter, Paul basically remembers his visit to them, mm -hmm. and he talks about the manner in which the gospel was preached to them, and he also talks about his desire to come and visit them. In verse one, you yourselves know, dear brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not a failure. He's writing this just after his failure in Athens, right? Yes, correct. You got it. Now you're learning. <laughs> yes. Yeah, he had a failure in Athens and he's not long after that he's writing this. He's writing this. And we know that the cruel treatment that they um, were under in Acts 7, 17 didn't stop them. Yep. It didn't terrify them enough to stop them from preaching the gospel. Yes, uh, yeah, okay. Yeah, was, so immediately before in Philippi they had been in prison and Paul and Silas were praying and the tomb prison doors had opened and they were marched out of town. Um, that's what they've experienced in Philippi immediately before coming to Thessalonica. Yeah. 
And thank you for filling that in. Okay, so here we go. Here he is. He's still in this wonderful letter about the second coming eventually. You know how badly we've been treated at Philippi, just as he said, just before we came and how much we suffered there. Yet our God gave us the courage to declare his good news to you boldly in spite of great oppression. So you can see we were not preaching with any deceit or impure motives or trickery. Basically, he's saying because we were under such persecution, we still preached. Therefore, you can see that we, yeah, we are... If we had anything to gain, yeah. we, we wouldn't have been doing this. We, okay. You know, if we were afraid of persecution, you know, we came to you with good motives. The fact that we persecuted, we were persecuted and we preached shows you that we're genuine. For we speak as messengers approved by God to be entrusted with the good news. Our purpose is to please God, not people. That's not really true of many people these days, no. isn't it? We prefer to please people. Please people, not God. And he alone examines the motives of our hearts, so he knows the pure hearts out there. Yeah. Which we just talked about we in the We just talked about, chapter. didn't we? Yeah. Never once did we try to win you with flattery. Fla- fla- <laughs> flattery. Flattery, <laughs> as you well know, and God is our witness. We were not pretending to be your friends just to get your money. As for human praise, we've never sought it from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we certainly had a right to make demands of you, but instead we were like children. We were like a mother feeding and caring for her own children. We loved you so much that we shared with you not only God's good news, but our own lives too. What does he mean by our own lives? They gave of their own lives? I think it's a picture of the fact that he didn't come asking for financial gain, but he was prepared to, in the time he was there, he was just giving them everything. Maybe he, maybe he was, maybe they were providing financially for those they were having hospitality with. Maybe they were saying, oh, I'll bring the food. I don't know. It doesn't – I think it's just, a, it's just a poetic picture of saying um, we gave you all we had. We didn't come to consume. We came to contribute. We came with generosity. And do you think Paul's talking about he was almost trust – he was almost tested rather before he comes to them. What happened at Philippi was a test and now he is entrusted with the word to come and speak to these guys. That's a valid assumption. I've not thought about it that way before. It fits the model that, that, that going through that testing and the victory and, and perseverance in Philippi, that victory in that moment is like you passed the test. You weren't in this personal gain. You were prepared to go to prison. Is that what you're saying? And yeah. Yeah, I think so. Yeah. So that would what you're saying is the Philippi experience was somehow a a crucible moment yes. for Paul. Yeah, it, it makes sense. I'm just trying to think what other crucible moments he might have experienced earlier. Or is this one of the earliest ones when he goes to Philippi? He's experienced some kind of persecution when he's on his first missionary journey through Turkey. I'll have to backtrack through the book of Acts. But yeah, you're right. Okay, so this was some kind of character-defining moment for Paul in his ministry. And could he have possibly been accused of trying to preach for money and trying to get gains in life? Yeah, and he was. He was in Corinth later on as well. So... Um, yeah, and he has to rebuke. He has to sort of defend himself in Second Corinthians for that very issue. People are accusing him of wanting of a financial gain. Is this why he makes such an effort to actually work with his hands later uh, on? Yes, and yes. in other chapters, yeah, other and books. elsewhere, he does. Yes, yeah, he wants to be. He said he wants to be able to. He'd say, I'd "Rather, I'd rather do that than have you accuse me of something that's going to get in the way of me being able to." Um, you know, uh, I, don't, I don't want my. Being, you know, he'll say in Second Corinthians, the worker is worth his wages, and you know he's making it clear you should be paying your pastors. Basically, is what he's saying. But he's saying if it comes push comes to shove, I'd rather not get paid and go and work if paying your pastors is going to get in the way of you getting saved. And I think any any pastor should have that attitude, not a sense of entitlement. But hey, if I need to because it's going to get in the way, I'll go and work. That's what he's trying to get at. So he's sort of setting up the idea that this is not a 
prosperity. Not a prosperity gospel. Gospel. Okay. Not at all. There's a hardship attached to this. Hardship in this one. Anyone who's been in pastoral ministry knows you don't go to pastoral ministry to make financial money. There might be a few few out there in television evangelists and so on, but most people, the sacrifice far outweighs the wage. (laughs) 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 For most of us. I've got to listen to your Ministry Matters podcast. I'll talk about some of that, yeah. yeah. I'm sure you will. Yeah. So in this book, we also see, in this chapter rather, the um, the pattern of becoming Christians again, I think, in this chapter. Yeah. Okay. Does that make yeah. sense? Yeah, I can see that as you're already as you're doing it. Yeah. yeah. So we have the thanksgiving and like the reception of the gospel, you know, in the power of God, verse two to five, we have that. Have the effect of the gospel, six to nine. Mm-hmm. And then we have also believers waiting for God's son and they will be delivered in verse 10, I believe, if I wrote that correctly. Verse 10 says, you yourselves are our witnesses and so is God that we were devout and honest and faultless toward all of you believers. Mm. That's the one I you're may have written that verse wrong down verse, wrong. I think. <laughs> yeah, actually, because I've gotten 10 written here twice. Yeah. All right, it's somewhere in there. Oh, yeah, okay. I'm not perfect. No, you're not perfect. You don't have to oh, be thanks perfect. For you don't that. have to be perfect, Jeannie. Just have to have a pure heart. <laughs> a pure heart. Yeah, so. You've got a pure heart. So he's reading between the lines, he's saying that in chapter one, and he's, and he's expressing it again in chapter two. Yes. Yep. What the pattern is. What the pattern is. Yeah, I can see that. I had not thought about that, but that fits. Yep. And he says they're bold to speak to you in the gospel. Mm-hmm. So his testing has made him bold. Yeah. Does testing make you bold to preach? Uh, yeah. As I, as I endure testing and see God's faithfulness and feel like I've come through that thing and it, I get emboldened or encouraged, might be a better word, to emboldened can sound like it can be used in an arrogant kind of way, but I get, I get courage on the inside to be able to be confident in my declaration of God's power and salvation to others, yeah. Do you need to be approved by God to speak the word in verse 4, for we speak as messages approved by God? I think it's safe to, to be approved by God. How do you get approved by God? Um, well, Paul would say, you know, I, I think his approval, at times where Paul will probably say his approval comes from just, he, he received it straight from the Holy Spirit, you know, during his time straight from Christ. But as a general principle, approval is a is a delegated responsibility within the church. So my approval to be able to preach would come from being approved of by those in our movement who have acknowledged that gift on me and then used that, and that principle would apply down the line. Our leaders would be approved of, and that so it's a delegated authority. As Paul will say to Timothy, you know, about the gift that is on you by the laying on of hands that you receive from the elders, that that's the approval process. It's usually through the acknowledgement of others who have gone before you who say, we see something on you, we're approving of you and appointing you. And if you are approved, can we say the confirmation of approval is success? Depends on how you define success. Well, in this case, Paul has actually succeeded in starting a church that... um, is filled with faith, hope, and love mm-hmm. versus, uh, you know, in Acts 17, uh, he fails in Athens. Yes, that's right. right? Yeah. But here he has been approved to at least go to this these people, mm-hmm. Thessal- the Thessalonians, and there is a flourishing church. Yes. However, I think that's still measuring the wrong thing. What? Mm. What do you mean? Well, let's look at Jesus on the cross. Yeah. At well, that okay. moment, do you think that's successful? No, that's a failure. And yet we know that's ultimate success. Yes. Okay, so, um, and that's that can be used as a cop-out to go, well, you know, 
you know, I just, if something's not growing or not flourishing, well, it's just that I'm, you know, I'm just enduring hardship. That's the cop out on the other side. But we measure success. Generally speaking, we measure the wrong things. We, God's looking in the heart. He's not looking at the outward appearance. He's not looking at the appearance of David's brothers. He's looking at David's heart. So I think we do need to ultimately measure success by what's going on inside our hearts and what's going on inside the hearts of believers. And you, you take, I look at some of the Pastor Richard Green, Kathy Green's churches in some of these stands around the world. And you look and they've, you know, they've got a small church of 20 people in locked away in a house. That's incredibly successful because I'm not measuring that by Australian standards. I'm measuring that by the fact that this is in, you know, some kind of persecuted uh, 1040 window country where they, they can't even show their faces on social media. That's success. So let's not fall into the trap of measuring success by how big or how grand or how wealthy things are. That's that's going to come crashing down. So God's success is different to our own success. It's different to our understanding of, of measure of success. Yes, exactly. And so Paul would say this is a successful church despite the fact that they, they're suffering persecution and some of them have died. Okay. He would still see You're, it as successful. Get, yes. So I actually like what you're saying because I'm going to spin it. So... I should see all the confusion in the questions and the study that I have about this this book, this compilation of 66 books <laughs> of the Bible as a success in God's eyes when in my eyes it just seems like a big blurry mess at the moment. Yeah, it's a good way to look at okay. it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. You will always see aspects of the Bible as a blurry mess. Yeah. But successful view is God has put together this book and he has given me what I need to uh, be able to rightly divide this for the benefit of myself, my family and the church and others that I interact with. Okay. So where I feel like a failure in that there's so much to read, there's so much to not understand or to understand. To understand. Yep. See, I'm even getting that confused. Um, that's, And sometimes I feel like giving up, like what's the point of all this Bible study? Is God actually going to answer me? Is he going to speak to me? Am I going to learn I have to actually realize that in God's eyes that I'm doing a good thing, <laughs> right? Come on. Okay. Yes. You you answered the question perfectly. You don't note. need me to do it, but All that's right. exactly tick, right. Tick, tick. Keep going, Jeannie. Yes. Great. Well said. <laughs> Keep going. Keep going, Keep reading. Oh, man. Keep reading. Like Keep studying. Boggle Keep my way through this. Okay. Where am I up to? See, now I'm lost. I don't know. You got it about. But I have been found. <laughs> yeah. oh, nice. No, that's so bad. <laughs> that was pretty corny, actually. Anyway. Oh, that was oh, really, dear. really corny. Okay. No, really, where am I? Uh, I think you're about verse 12 or something when we're in there. 10. You went through the, the guide. You went through right. the pattern. Paul has it. He's got a deep affection for these people when we say yeah. he. He, he gives his life like he truly loves them. Yes. And because he truly loves them, they then model his love, which is also. Paul is modeling Christ's love. They model his Model-less love. love. Yep. And they are able to love each other and love the community around them. Yep. Right? Exactly. Okay. Despite the persecution. Despite the persecution. Yep. Yes. And verse 10, you yourselves are our witnesses and so is God that we were devout and honest and faultless towards all you believers. And we treated you as a father treats his own children. We pleaded with you, encouraged you and urged you to live your lives in a way that God would consider worthy. For he called you to share in his kingdom and glory. It would be hard to stomach that when they are under persecution, mm. kingdom of glory, mm. kingdom and glory. When all they're seeing... Verse 14 says, And now, dear brothers and sisters, you suffered persecution from your own countrymen. In this way, you imitated the believers of God's churches in Judea, who because of their belief in Christ suffered from their own people, the Jews. So he's he's actually saying it's your suffering that actually does 
validate your core. It's it's your suffering which explains that you're a true followers. Oh man, you're suffering, not your success. Not your success. Oh dear you're me. You're actually copying the Jews who suffered persecution in Judea when they decided to convert to Christ. And now you Gentiles are suffering it from your countrymen as well. But that's the measure of success, not how big your church is. The fact that you are enduring that and continuing to do it with what you just said before, reaching out, sharing, compassion, all that sort of stuff. <laughs> it's funny how this conversation has gone in, in a slight Full circle, circle here. Full yes. <laughs> so Paul's version of success is that they are suffering. Is this what you're saying? I think it's the fact that they are, he's encouraging them to suffer and you can be successful in the suffering. God will protect you in the suffering. Because Christ suffered, because you Christ will suffered, suffer. Because Christ you suffered. You are an, a representative, an example of Christ. Yep. You were sharing in his kingdom and his glory. Yep, that's right. We share in Christ's kingdom through sharing in his sufferings. This is such a different view of faith than to what we have now, I think. Because in the West. In the West, yes. yes. Yeah, I was yes. going to say in, in the West because... You, you read this to someone in a persecuted church, Christians in Palestine, for instance. Let's just stick to our current topic. You know, Christian churches, Arab Christians in persecution who perse- are persecuted by their Muslim brothers, they're persecuted by Israelis, they're persecuted by Western Christians because they're not Israelis. This is just common practice to them. They just know this. All the ones that I just referred to, Richard and Kathy Green reach out to throughout Middle East and Northern Africa, this is their bread and butter. They, 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 their success, they get this. It's just we Westerners don't get this because we think success is the absence of suffering. Paul would say success is the endurance in the face of suffering. And the way you said that then makes me view the second coming as, well, as the way it should be viewed in that it is this hope and uh, joy in the second coming of Christ. Yet when I grew up, I lived in a time of um, prosperity, yep. I suppose, in, in in our Western culture, and the second coming was always viewed as something to be terrified That's of. That's right, Jeannie. Somehow we live – I have so many people in my church that are – say it was in our church, that, you know, I don't read the book of Revelation, I'm scared of it. Um, there's that – we have not done a good job. That's not what it was intended to be. It was intended to be pastoral because when you're comfortable, hardship seems like something to be avoided. When you're in hardship, the future comfort is something to lay hold of to enable us to endure through hardship. So that's where I'm going next year. There's a big part of what I'm sensing as I prepare and plan for next year and put together Bible reading plan and so on. That is a massive part of what I think God is calling uh, Western Christians and in our churches to to get a hold of. I think life's going to get harder, not easier, at multiple levels. And um, if we don't prepare Christians to to understand how to suffer well and understand God's protection and the future glory, people will want to give up. That's what was going on here. That's what going on in the book of Hebrews. They were ready to go back to Judaism because it was a whole lot easier than suffering persecution. Oh, let's just go back to the Jewish thing. That worked okay. Paul's going to correct them in Hebrews and say, no, no, it's not how it works. So I think that's where we're going. I think we're going into a time where life will be harder and we need to encourage people to recognise that does not mean you're not a success. This is going to shift my, I think, my entire foundation of my theological beliefs because I have come out of, I've been born out of this prosperity, right? Mm -hmm. But the Gospels come out of suffering. Yes, that's right. And it's a, you can interpret 
the scriptures in a very different way yep. based on where you've come from. Yep. We, we have a lens into your eyes. We don't see our own glasses. So when we come from our perspective, we re- put our lens over it, we miss this. But if we can, now it's becoming more apparent because life is getting, we're heading into a season where there's financial pressure and the world seems to be stacked against the church more and more in the West. So now it's suddenly the, the lens is coming off and we're putting different lenses on and we're seeing it differently. But I'm encouraged by that because I think that's more in line with what the first century church was going through. So actually the, the bulk of the New Testament will come to life in a way that maybe we've been missing for a long time in the West. Mm, maybe we don't truly understand the idea of God as a hope. Yeah. A Well, God. when you've got everything or think you've got everything, you don't need hope. And yet um, you're going to get to the book of Revelation and Paul's going to rebuke the church at Laodicea because they think they've got everything. You think oh, no. you think we're you, not that church? Are we're we? not that you know. You think you've got everything, but you're actually poor, poor, blind, wretched, and naked. Jesus will say to them because they think they have everything. Woe betide! I think we're heading into a time where maybe we're aware we haven't got everything. Well, that's hopeful to me. Oh man, this is there's a lot here. Okay, here and here. Um, this this is what I want to pick up on that he's talking about the second coming here. I'm going to skip down to verse 19. Mm-hmm. After all, what gives us hope and joy? And what will be our proud reward and crown as we stand before our Lord Jesus when he returns? And then he says, it is you, you, the church, you are our pride and joy. Wow, what a good encouragement to them. This is one of the first mentions um, of the second coming in the epistle, right? In, in this letter? Part? Yes. You're saying? Yes, I yeah. think so. Yeah, it's I don't think you mentioned one. it in chapter one. Yep. No, okay. Oh, it, gonna... occur, it occurs seven times. I've got it here in both the... Thessalonians 1 and 2. Two yep. It's divided in four times in the first one and three times in the second mm-hmm, one. Mm-hmm. And here's a word I didn't know. Perusia. Perusia. Now refresh my mind. That's the second coming. That's the second coming. Okay. Yeah. It's actually called that. The second coming. Is um, Perusia. Perusia. Mm-hmm. Yes. So they would be saying uh, when we, as we stand before our Lord and we wait for Perusia. Wait for him to Perusia. Yes. Okay. <laughs> That's what Something it means. like that. His return, his second coming. Okay. Yeah. I've heard the word. I just can't remember it. Not fresh in my mind. No, I'd never heard of it. You've never heard it. No, no. I have heard it, but it's not one that I've. Don't think I've preached from it. So. So this is his first mention in in chapter two nineteen. He also mentions it in three thirteen four fifteen and five twenty three. So it's a common word. It's a common thing. This is how we know this book is about the second coming, the return of Christ. The word parousia from the present participle. Um, uh, of three nine one eight, this is this is um, Strong's, um, a being, advent, a coming, often return, especially of Christ uh, to punish Jerusalem and the old, of Christ to punish Jerusalem. Okay, uh, uh, the coming arrival you... advent. I'm reading Strong's Strong's meaning of the okay. word here. The coming arrival advent, the fa- the future visible return of, to heaven from heaven of Jesus to raise the dead, hold the judgment, set up formally His glorious kingdom of God. I don't think Strong's has done a really great explanation there. No, that was a little bit strange, a little it bit was. disjointed. Uh, the word, the, the root word that comes from parimai, uh, to be near, at hand, uh, to to come, to be present. So, yes, I, I can see the root word meaning that, but it's it's not actually a – literally probably, well, probably in some ways – second coming or return actually makes more sense to us than than the explanation that's giving Mm. of the Greek word. Yes. Yeah. Okay. Okay. One last thing. Verse 18. 
We wanted very much to come to you. This is Paul speaking. And I, Paul, tried again and again, but Satan prevented us. Mm, we've said that a few times. Yeah. Yeah. You know, in the Lord's Prayer, when it says, um, when Jesus says, let your will be done, here it's kind of saying here, God's will isn't done. Satan prevents you, prevented us. Mm-hmm. I, I think it's an awareness that there's an a battle. An awareness that there's a battle, yeah. Yeah. I was just I had to pause when I read that. Satan prevented us. He's not he saying be, the Holy Spirit because at other no, times no, he claims the Holy No, times the Holy Spirit, Spirit restrained him from going. Yep, yeah, that's right. So in this case, he's somehow he feels that the the accuser is the one who's pre- prevented him. It could be that persecution was so strong. It could be that, um, you know, it wasn't easy for him to get away from Athens. I don't know whether or not by the time he's written this, he's out of Athens and in Corinth, possibly. Um, I can't remember exactly when Paul and Silas come to him. But, yeah, I think there's some kind of sense there of, of an awareness that he's in a spiritual battle. On that note, let's go back to David. Okay, back Psalm to David. Psalm 37. Holy dooly, this is a big psalm. This is 40 verses as well. I don't think we're going to do verse by verse through this one, Jeannie. It is a big psalm. I was so excited when I saw the psalms on this <laughs> because I thought, oh, they'll be really short. But no, you gave me the <laughs> I biggest ones. gave you the ones. long psalms, didn't we? Yeah, I couldn't believe it. I didn't it. give them to you. You chose this, Jeannie. Uh, no, I actually. You threw yourself in the middle oh, of this. Oh, yeah. This, I think was I, a, this was a month of uh, of uh, men, and I think you said, we need a female. I'm just looking at the notes here. So you said, I'll do it. <laughs> yeah, because no one else would. Thanks, no ladies. Would. Thanks for leaving me <laughs> hanging. <laughs> All right. Thumb, thumb. <laughs> psalm 37 is the psalm of David. Starts off so beautifully. Don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. For like grass, they soon fade away. Like spring flowers, they soon wither. Don't worry about the wicked or envy those who do wrong. I'm always worried about the wicked and I always envy those who do wrong because they usually get really rich. <laughs> <laughs> David will address that in the psalm multiple times. Yeah. Why but, is it that the righteous suffer and the wicked prosper, he will say? Yes, for like, but I, they will fade away. Yes, exactly. Okay. You know, this verse, this chapter um, is, or psalm I should say, is an acrostic. Is it? Okay. Yeah, a Hebrew. Many of them are. An Hebrew acrostic. 22 stanzas. Yep. Yep, they, which means they... <laughs> our, our very astute listeners who listened to last week's episode will have heard us talk about the Book of Lamentations with Jimmy, which is also an acrostic of 22 ah. by 22 by 66 by 22 by 22. Wow. Well, this and actually, slightly, 20, yes, so slightly different. The 22 verses in Lamentations 1, 22 verses in Lamentations 2 that are both acrostics, 22 times 3 in Lamentations 3, 22 by 4 in Lamentations 4, and then 22 verses with no acrostic in Lamentations 5. Great. Thank you, Jimmy. You've probably cut down my podcast by about half an hour. So let, go go listen to his. I'm sure he'll just go in a nutshell. That. An acrostic starts with uh, a new letter of the Hebrew alphabet for each line, which is 22 um, letters in the Hebrew alphabet. And this psalm, actually, you need to read um, in relationship with Psalm 36 and 35. Right, they all flow together. They sort of flow together. Sorry, folks, I didn't include 36 and 35, but oh, anyway. Dear. Okay, because in this one, Psalm 36, I have here that the psalm tells the redeemed sinner who's in 36, that's Mm -hmm. about the redeemed sinner, um, and who is cleansed by the atoning blood of Psalm 35. Okay. And the great shepherd I've got here now says, don't fret because of the mysterious prosperity of the wicked. I see. That does make sense. It's this constant, continuous flow of thought that the the organisers – 
who've done the, the final arrangement have put them together in that flow of thought. Yes. Okay. Yeah. So don't fret because of the prosperity of the wicked versus one to 11 and because of the murderous hatred of the world, I chose some pretty choice Strong words, words there. there. That's why you're a writer, the murderous <laughs> hatred of oh the world. Dear. Yeah, I know. We're seeing that Probably laid the wrong out. week to say yeah. that. 12 to 15 and also verse 32. Um, and don't worry about these things because they'll be short-lived and the ever-enduring prosperity and love, eternal love, will be enjoyed by the believer if they keep trusting in the shepherd. That's mm -hmm. what this mm -hmm. psalm is about. Yep. And he promises to deliver and enrich them forever. Verses, I've got 17 to 40 roughly. Okay. Those ones. So you can break down these psalms. And when yes, you, look you can. At them, if you look at them, are, there's a flow of thought. Yeah. Just like in most songs that are written or poems that are written, there's always a flow of thought. It's a good, good way to process it. As you, and very often with the psalms, it's starting with anguish, moving to hope. Not almost exclusively. We did Last week we did Psalm 88, which ends in hopelessness. There's only really two chapters in yeah. the Bible that completely end in hopelessness, Psalm 88 and Job 2. But um, normally the process is go through hopelessness, pour out your heart to God, come to a place of hopefulness. And this psalm addresses two questions or two thoughts that the, the new believer at least has, mm -hmm. which is, hang on, it, when we become a Christian, um, people will hate us. Mm -hmm. That's what it says. And number two, uh, the idea, the thought, while if I'm a Christian, why do all the evil people prosper? Yep. Why don't I get why ahead? Why don't I get ahead? Yeah. Yep. And it seems so unfair and yep. it's confounding. And they are the two things people do. Very, very common for people to wrestle with those things. Come it's across. a human issue. Yeah. Yeah. Because I'm doing the right thing. Why is it, Why am I not getting ahead in life? Why is it that people cut corners in their businesses and lie and cheat and seem to get get by? And it's this whole thing of, in the end, God, God sees. God sees, yeah. And he encourages us in this. Um, don't fret. Keep trusting. Keep and delighting in him, committing to him, and then waiting for him. And then while we do that, then he promises a deliverance of the wicked, actually. <laughs> disappearance, sorry. Not the deliverance of the wicked. Yeah, yeah, of the wicked. And um, we're assured that the Messiah will hold us by hand and that he will enrich the believer. And then finally in verse 40, he will surely deliver the believer, which kind of sounds a little bit like the second coming. Okay, yep. I think. Yep, that ultimately that's when deliverance will be fully experienced. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So what you've got there is a superb pattern. And I would say, take that pattern, listen to that, rewind that, beep, 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 beep. <laughs> rewind that, listen to that pattern, write it down, and then go back and read this psalm through that pattern and allow verse by verse to, especially if you're going through this, experiencing this thing of feeling like, you know, you're doing the right thing and it's not working out and you see others around you that seem to be succeeding and they don't seem to be doing the right thing. They don't operate in integrity. I think if you take that pattern and read this psalm reflectively and meditate on it, you'll come to that point that you're talking about. That's how these psalms are supposed to be read. Okay. And I'll tell you how I read it incorrectly. Okay. <laughs> First of all, I read this very much out of my cultural context mm -hmm. because I just saw the negative. I saw that God is going to judge the wicked. He's going to do oh, this to the wicked. He's going to do all of that. And that makes me question why is God so mean to the wicked, you know? Right. Uh, and I think it's because I have grown up in that time of prosperity in my faith. I have not lived in the suffering because if I was in the suffering, I would view it differently. You would see the justice of God yes. would be deserved. Yes. Yes. Yes, because we, what we define as wicked for many of us 
Um, and this is not to dismiss those that have experienced severe trauma, like you mentioned before, abuse and so on. But many of us in the West don't really grasp the pain that many people have suffered throughout most of time and most of the world and most of history. <laughs> no, well, we don't certainly don't have a government that is uh, cracking down on us or we don't have uh, terrorists at our doorstep. That's right. Here and um, we have grown up where we can freely in a world where we can freely express our faith, and we haven't grown up in the opposite. That's right. <laughs> yeah. yes. So, but I do find that I tend to err on the side of getting upset with God that He might judge people, mm-hmm. rather than being on the side where I am glad for His judgment. Got you. Got it. Yes, I do. Yeah. Yeah, I'm seeing through the Book of Jonah, and that's interesting that Jonah's. Jonah's being rebuked for the view that is opposite of yours. Yeah. <laughs> He's being rebuked because he doesn't want them to experience God's forgiveness and grace. I knew that you were a God who'd forgive them, but they don't deserve it, Lord. And that's the whole message of the book of Jonah. So he's attacking, God is trying to re- bring back the other extreme perspective. Maybe for us, we need to see that there's a ju- the justice of God is is deserved. Most people in the West say, well, you know, isn't God a vindictive God? Whereas people who, most people in history actually, if anything, they they want the vindictiveness of God, the justice of God, and they need to grasp the compassion of God. And we're kind of coming from the other end of the spectrum. Yes. But if I am ever sitting under a vine branch and it withers (laughs) over top of me, I'll let you know. Yes, that's right. (laughs) That's what happens, isn't it? That's what happens. Yeah. Yeah, that's right. And he's worried about that, but he's not worried about all the people in Nineveh and the cows. Let's read Job, Jonah, Jonah 4 to see what I'm talking about. Here. All right. Okay. So no, no matter when the, uh, the, the wicked are um, doing well, trust in the Lord and continue to do good, it says in verse 3, but then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Take delight in the Lord and he will give you, give you your heart's desires. And that scripture is taken. Psalm 37, 4 is quoted on its own very often. Without the context. <laughs> yeah, well, I have a question. Give you your heart's desires. Yes, what does exactly. that mean? So, <laughs> so that is be that could be taken from a prosperity perspective to go. God's going to give him on the new car or the new house or the new whatever. Put it back in its context, though, and um, it takes on a different perspective because the desire is is that we would experience the the. Um, we would experience the um, the justice of God. We would experience it. So it's not just those that um, are doing evil that somehow get some kind of prosperity, but that we would experience God's vindication and God's justice if we keep delighting in him. Here's the other thing I would say to that. <laughs> if we delight in the Lord, he will give you the heart's desires. There's a similar pattern there. If you're delighting in the Lord, your heart's desires will be the, what the Lord's desires. So um, if you put God first, if you honour him, if you, what was the word we used before, have a pure heart, an upright heart, yep. then your desires will not be selfish desires. They will be godly desires. Can he also put his own desires in your heart so that you start to see his desires as your own desires? Yes, and I think okay. that's what he does. You said it so much more succinctly. That's what he does through the process of us delighting in him. The more we focus on him, the more we want what he wants. That's right. You got it. Okay. That's it. But then if you're saying this is a term of judgment, uh, if we should see um, this as judgment, are you saying that God also desires judgment? Justice. Justice. Sorry, justice. I get this. Well, no, so they, they, they are closely linked. But um, God does but actually desire as, justice. I'm, as I'm reflecting on it, he does want justice. But as I'm reflecting on it, maybe I, I need to counteract what, I'm, what I just said because – Uh-oh. Uh-oh, but this is what you do when you study scripture. 
trust in the Lord and do good, then you will live safely in the land and prosper. Okay, so there is a sense in which there is a there is a safety, a prosperity, a, a shalom that God wants us to experience. And we'll get that by delighting ourselves in the Lord. And the, the desire is for prosperity and, and that sort of stuff. So I don't think it's specifically talking about not experiencing shalom. It's just how we define it. Shalom is not necessarily the material prosperity of the Western world. Shalom is, that that means no, that may, makes no sense to someone who's living in some kind of persecution. Shalom has to be deeper than just material prosperity. It can be that, but that's not the only mark of um, sign of it, I don't think. I wonder if our heart's desires are something along the lines of wanting peace. Yeah, I think so. Do a study on shalom. Shalom. Because it's all over the it's all over the Bible. It's it's a deep theme and it is that exactly that. It's wanting peace. It's peace of heart and mind. Jesus says, My peace I leave with you, as in John towards the end of his time in his prayer there. My peace I give you. That's it's not the word shalom there because it's in Greek, but that's the same concept, this deep, deep seated peace that we can experience in life. Ah, and he didn't say, My joy be with you. No, he says my peace. My peace. Yeah. True. That's going back to a couple of chapters. Couple of we chapters were talking ago. before. Yep. That's right. Okay. All right. Let's keep going. Commit everything you do to the Lord. Trust Him, and He will help you. He will make your innocence radiate like the dawn, and the justice of your cause will shine like the noonday sun. Be still in the presence of the Lord and wait patiently for Him to act. How often do you do that? Not often enough. <laughs> I'm getting better. Me neither. I hate and waiting. I think I'm getting better. Or I fail. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Hopefully I'm failing less often. The problem is when I'm waiting patiently for him to act, the more I worry about evil people who prosper uh, and yeah. the more I fret about their wicked <laughs> right. schemes. Yes, I see. Yes, well, that's why the psalm like this is good for us. <laughs> I'm, it I'm helps us recalibrate, my... <laughs> doesn't it? Yes, I'm confessing my, um, I don't know. Failings. Failings, yep. yeah. Stop being angry, verse 8. Turn from your rage. Don't lose your temper. It only leads to harm. For the wicked will be destroyed and those who trust in the Lord will possess the land. Don't they already possess the land or is this speaking of something like future tense, like end days, land, Jerusalem, New Jerusalem? Maybe. Yeah. I think you'd have to say because, yes, they, they, in David's time, definitely they, they have a mastery over the land. So it's probably figuratively talking about the ultimate fulfilment of all the lands, all that, that thing that in the end all nations will come to Christ, come to the – all nations will come to uh, worship God. I think that's probably what it is. Well, when did he write this? He's not speaking about um – or is he speaking about when he becomes king over both nations, both lands, uh, join united? Possibly. Possibly. I don't know. I don't know when he wrote it. That's a lot of the problem is with a lot of these psalms, we don't know when David wrote them. There's a lot of lessons here he's talking about, though. When we're waiting for God and when we're perplexed, when we see the evil, you know, don't become angry. Don't mm. become worried. Don't become impatient. Don't, well, yeah. he, this is a favourite old school word. Don't become vexed. Yes, vexed is vexed. the point, yes. Oh, did you watch the, not the crown, that the upstairs, downstairs one, Julian Fallows. Upstairs, downstairs. This is the one I've watched for a long time. No, no, it's not called that. It's really famous. Oh, you're talking about Downton Abbey. Downton Abbey, yeah. Yes. Yeah. Doesn't she always say I'm vexed? Or is, oh, who's that? Is Cora? I can't remember. Can't remember so. who says I'm vexed. <laughs> Maybe I'm confusing. It does sound something. like an old English word. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> don't grow angry and don't retaliate because it's actually the Messiah who will vindicate the people, right? Yes. Yep. And he's the one who delivers them when they're persecuted. 
and he's the one who establishes them them as rulers. Yeah, which is what he's pretty much talking about in First Corinth in First Thessalonians as well. He's encouraging with that same thing. Yeah. yeah. So this is it's almost like so whoever put this together put it together so they overlap with each other. This theme, don't they? Yes, they yeah. certainly do. <laughs> yeah, and we're constantly reminded here that the power and the prosperity of the enemies it's it's temporary. Yeah. And the joy and the hope and the future life of believers is eternal. eternal. Amen. That's yes. what keeps us going. That's what keeps That's us going. That's protection. That's ultimate protection. I can see how if you are living in that time of suffering, uh, this psalm could be could really speak to you. Yep. Instead of me looking at going, oh, the poor wicked. They're going to – anyway. It's <laughs> terrible. But I, here, verse 12, verse um, – this made me stop and think. The wicked plot against the godly. They snarl at them in defiance. Is this saying or pointing to that there is evil? The wicked, like they plot against the godly, like there is an, a battle between evil and good? Yep. Yeah, definitely. And it's very tangible to him. He's talking about whatever enemies he has, these natural enemies he has that are, that are coming against him. He could be talking about his own son here, you know. Yeah, he could. could. He could default, um, coming against him. He could be talking about Saul. Um, he could be talking about Shimei, uh, uh, Sheba, son of Bikri. There was multiple ones that came against him. If you recall my conversation with you about uh, Bear Sheba, yeah, that he could also be talking about Uzziah. Was that his uh, the the leader, the, her husband? Um, What's his name? Uriah. Uriah, yes, sorry. He said Bathsheba, sorry, yes, Beersheba. Oh, to Beersheba the place. Beersheba the place. Bathsheba and Uriah, yes. I knew I'd get her name because I can never say her name. So could he be talking about Uriah? Yeah. Remember how I said to you, it was like a... um, Oh, yes, I see what you mean. All that that nonsense. (laughs) Nonsense, people believe it. Yeah, it's very fringy people believe it. That he was committing treason. Yes, most people don't believe that, Jeannie. We settled that one. And it's Bathsheba. You yeah. know why I said Beersheba? Because I looked at it on a map last night. Did you? Yes, you would have. And you would have realised that Beersheba is not far from Gaza. Yes. Yeah. 15 k's. That's right. See, there's... <laughs> yes, and we've been, we went... We, there is method to my to madness. Yes. yes. Okay. So there's an Australian War Memorial, Anzac Memorial in Beersheba. All right, okay. It's where the light horse went. It's where the light horse went. Yes. That's correct. Yes. Actually, there are some in the area around here. Camden. Yes, some there is. There. Correct. Okay. We digress. Okay, the lowly will possess the land. So this is sort of saying to me, we know that he is in the land at this point, but they will possess. They will live in prosperity. Future tense. Number, oh, verse 11 that was. Okay, I'm going to point out something here too. But the Lord just laughs in verse 13. The Lord laughs. Okay. For he sees their day of judgment coming. Yeah. You sounds you saying that sounds cruel? I I didn't know what to think about it. It reminds me of which will come a few hundred years later when Isaiah gives the prophecy to Hezekiah saying the Lord in heaven scoffs against the enemy that comes against him. Uh, you know, he laughs in derision. It's it's a poetic way of saying, "Nay, give me your best shot." You know, your best shot is going to oh, come right. to nothing. Give me your best shot, okay. Yeah, you can give your best shot, but it's going to come to nothing. You can't touch me. It's the law. It's a, it's a it's a bold declaration of God's ultimate triumph over evil. Right. Okay. I did look that up. There's about three times that it uses that phrase. Yeah. The Bible. Yeah, I think it's. I, well, you can tell me, but I just think that's that's how I read it. It's no, poetic. I think I agree with you. Yeah. Yeah. 
verses 14, um, it tells us here there are evil-hearted and evil-minded people mm. because they actually do. They come out with their bow, their swords and their bows just to kill the poor and the oppressed and to slaughter those who do right. There is an evil intent in people's hearts. Yes. And so this is where I'm still working this through because, you know, as Christians we condition and we should treat all people with dignity and value and respect and, you know, that kind of thing. That's that's valid. However, what do we do with people who have given themselves so wholeheartedly to rebellion and evil and uh, murder and slaughter, as it says here, all of those things? What do we do with those people? Those people who have so an- allowed themselves to be so animated by the spirit of the enemy that they bring themselves under judgment. How do we do that? So let's take Hamas. What do we do with the level of wickedness we're seeing in Hamas? How do we balance wanting to see repentance and compassion for Hamas, just as the Nineveh, Jonah's, you know, the book of Jonah is about, really, you have to, when you think Nineveh in Jonah, you have to think Hamas. That's, they're very similar pe- people, right? So how do we show compassion but also long for justice and think that it's right that God should pronounce justice upon the wickedness of Hamas for what they have done? I want to talk about the Israelis and what they're doing. I'm not talking about that, specifically Hamas at the moment who are using their own people, let alone anybody, let alone the Jews. How do we reconcile that? Because that fits. Hamas fit this cat, this psalm really well. The wicked seeming to prosper. We have to, we have to think this through. And in the end, we have to realize that any sign of judgment, like if I'm honest, I want those Hamas soldiers to be judged, whatever that looks like. I have to, I have to want that. I cannot... I cannot tolerate that level of evil and think it's okay. Oh, just, you know, oh, you know, just forgive them. This is incredible torture. Now, I'm not, don't, I'm not being pro, totally pro-Israel here. I'm not trying to make a political statement because I think there are significant problems on the Israeli side as well. I'm just talking specifically about the evils of Hamas and what they've done there. I have to balance that and go compassion and justice need to go hand in hand here. And I'll be honest, I don't know how to reconcile that in my own heart, let alone be able to put that across in a way that is whole, whole encompassing of the word of God and what God's about. I just need to come back to scriptures like this and meditate on them and go, God, help me to have your heart for this situation. As you wrestle with that, I, I also have to wrestle with me wanting a, well, the Lord says that he desires everybody to be saved. Mm-hmm. But then I have to think, well, Lord, how could you desire a person who has committed such atrocities, how could you desire them to be saved? Mm-hmm. Was that a good, did I yes, put that exactly, right? Yes, that's exactly, that's the, that's the nutshell of the tension I'm talking about. And yet I look at my own heart and the blackness in my own heart and I know that I needed to be saved. Now my, I'm going around trying to do what Hamas has done, but left to my own devices um, that and, and radicalization and all those sorts of things, I need to think, but there, but for the grace of God go I. So there has to be this balance between compassion and justice. And it's, it's complex to work out. Anybody thinks they can just figure this out easily is kidding themselves. So, yeah, I'm exactly like you. I want justice, but I need compassion. If you take either extreme too far, if I take the justice thing too far, I'll end up like Jonah who doesn't show any compassion and just wants the justice of God only. And if I take what you were saying before, we just take, we read a psalm like this and we just want, oh, God, to be compassionate, we circumvent or short-circuit the justice of God and we end up not representing that side of God. 
God is beyond our comprehension. If anything, this should show us that that level of uh, understanding of the nature of God is beyond human reasoning. Yeah. That he some, somehow he can perfectly balance grace and justice together in a way that will just blow our mind when we look back and see that. We can't possibly f- figure that out. I look forward to that day yeah. when we see how he figures it all out. Yeah, and I think that's part of the hope of the future, that, that that's what the writers will talk to in the New Testament and go, there'll come a time where it'll all make sense. Look forward to that day. And it comes back to that pure heart, doesn't it? Mm. At the end, yep. it is the pure heart. I trust in you, Lord. Trust. Oh, man, these are tricky days. Yeah. Tricky times. Yes, they are indeed. <laughs> tricky questions. Yep. Now you've thrown me, now you've, now you've sent me in a downward depression. I'll I think pull it's, myself we, back we need up. to wrestle with it. We do need to wrestle with it. And here first, oh, look at this. See, I was directed straight to this, verse 34. Put your hope in the Lord. Travel steadily on his, along his path. That'll bring me back that'll, up. That'll bring you back up. Yep. <laughs> you will see the wicked destroyed. I know. <laughs> this this <laughs> promise of justice right there. Yeah. You will see the wicked destroyed. And I think this is really talking about end times here because by giving you the land, he has, David has the land. Uh, I think, what do you think? Do you think it's it's pointing forward? It's pointing forward to the ultimate coming of God's kingdom when every right is wrong, every wrong is righted, when every dream is fulfilled, when heaven comes to earth. They're, we're not fully living in that. They might have the land, but they still had this sense of there's still wickedness in the world, there's still brokenness and pain and hurting and all of this ruthlessness of people. And it's looking forward to that day when the kingdom will fully come. Because the land here is really the promise, isn't it? Yes, we are. but the land was not just a geographical land. It's a, it's more than that. It comes to represent more than physical territory. It comes to represent the coming of God's kingdom yes, and everything it that's represents. that's what I mean by the promise. Sorry, I didn't yes. mean the Old Testament promise. I mean the New Testament yes. promise of the kingdom of God on earth. Yes. Yeah, okay. And we will see the wicked destroyed, so the judgment is coming. Yes. Yeah, and we know that the wicked are not destroyed right now. That's yes. why this is forward. That's why. Forward-looking. Yep, and you're still seeing that in most of the New Testament letters as well that we're reading, constantly dealing with the persecution and the evils of this world and what it's like to be an outpost of heaven in the midst of a broken world. There's one last thing I want to point out because I think this is – we've touched a lot on here. It's a long, long psalm. Mm-hmm. But verse 9 – Back to uh, verse for 9, back, all right. No, verse 9, I thought it was really cute and it's not – in this translation, it's in the it's in the King James version. Uh, in this translation, it says, "For the wicked will be destroyed, but those who trust in the Lord will possess the land." And then, verse eleven, the lowly will possess the land and will get, live in peace and prosperity. Do you have it in the New King James? I uh, let me look it up in New King James. Verse nine says, "For evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait on the Lord, they shall inherit the earth." Hello. And number and 11. verse 11 says, but the meek shall inherit the earth, hello, and they shall delight themselves in the abundance of peace. Oh, I see where you go with this. Yeah, Tell said, our listeners what you're going with, Jeannie. Who not, said that? Uh, his name, it's someone who starts with J and ends with eases. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the yeah. Beatitudes. Interesting. Yeah, yeah, I didn't see that before. No, I I've saw not. It it's a long time since I've read, in, read my Bible in the New King James, so, you know, I used to. See yeah, what you the, miss in you, translation you to translation yeah, or what you gain? That yeah. was a really good explanation. I want Jesus is definitely riffing off this psalm in the Beatitudes, isn't he? Why is Jesus pointing to this psalm? Because they are living in a time of persecution under Roman rule when they're not seeing 
the kingdom of God the way they wanted. And Jesus starts by saying the kingdom of God is here. It's near you. It's among you now. So, yes, it's, I think this is the Ramez or whatever it is, the Hebrew version. This is trying to cast them back to this moment. So I always say this, you know, this, these Jewish listeners are steeped in this. So you've just seen it. But the moment Jesus says, blessed are the meek, they shall inherit the earth, every Jewish person there just automatically loads up Psalm 37 in their mind. And they go back and go, ah, oh, Psalm 37, that's the one all about the suffering. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. So I can endure the suffering. So Jesus is bringing that context forward into his current teaching. That's how Jesus works. And is he not alluding to the judgment day? Yes. His second coming? All of that. All of that. That's that's how all the New Testament writers do that. They're steeped in the Old Testament. So when they quote something from the Old Testament, the Old Testament in the New Testament, we have not done a good job of going back to the Old Testament. We try to take that little quote on its own, but that quote is intended to take you back into the whole passage of the Old Testament, load up that, then come back to the New Testament and say, what is this passage saying in the New Testament in light of the Old Testament passage that was quoted? Okay. So let's go to the New Testament and see okay. what, what happens see what there. Says. All right. Come on, Jeannie, you can find the right page. I've got it now. 1 Thessalonians 3. Here we are. Uh, Paul's writing here about the concern for their faith. And he he goes on to say why Paul sent Timothy to them. And Timothy's good report was a consolation to him. It's basically what happens, roughly. Yeah, so he sends Tim back. Tim says, hey, it's all going well up there. And he feels comforted by that. Yep. What does he say about them? Uh, this is verse six, but Timothy has just returned again, bringing good news of your faith and love. He reports that you always remember our visit, the two week visit with joy that you want to see us as much as we want to see you. So we've been greatly encouraged in the midst of our troubles and suffering, dear brothers and sisters, because you have remained strong in your faith. It gives us new life to know that you are standing firm in the Lord. How we thank God for you. Because of you, we have great joy as we enter God's presence. Night and day, we pray earnestly for you, asking God to give, let us see you again, to fill the gaps in your faith. Why are there gaps? Because he's only been there two weeks. But what a great, what a great encouragement, hey? Still can't believe it was only two weeks. Mm. He did a lot in two weeks. He used his time. This letter here reminds me how much I love testimonies in church. Yes. When you hear about other people's faith and, and their love and how God has worked in their lives. Yeah, great. It encourages you. It encourages people more than listening to a preacher, I can tell you. Well, it depends on the preacher, I suppose. You know, Maybe Pastor Rowan, you have some good days. <laughs> Occasional good days. I'm always aware that probably people would rather listen to someone give a testimony than the preacher. Oh, no. I love preaching. Oh, no, no, sorry. I love hearing preachers. Yeah. That's what I should say. Yeah, well, it's um, a, it is a valid aspect of ministry. It's not the only aspect, yeah. I like here, verse 9, it is, right. How we thank God for you because of you we have great joy as we enter God's presence. Interesting that you can just enter God's presence. Yes. Right? It's not something you have to go to. Once again, that sounds like the whole David thing, doesn't it? Yeah. It's like Psalm, what are we, 32. Yep. Yep, that's right. You're immediately in God's presence when you seek him and you pray. Good. And night and day they're praying earnestly. Night and day, why do you have to pray so much? <laughs> well, he's having hardships himself, so I, I don't know he's, whether he's, I think he's just, it's a, his picture, it's his poetic way of saying, I'm always praying, constantly praying. 
He does say that a lot. He mm. always encourages you, doesn't he, to yep. pray without ceasing, yeah. pray a lot, and pray for protection mm. uh, in a bit later on. Yeah, he will. Yep. Why do we have to pray for protection? I'm just going to ask you that now. Well, Thessalonians are suffering persecution, so they need God's protection. Um, but shouldn't we just assume that when we become Christians, we un- we enter mm-hmm. into the, his, under his wings and things like that? I think we need to keep reminding ourselves that God has chosen to partner with humans. That's the first chapters of the Bible, and it's never changed. God has invited his people into partnership to bring his will to earth, thy kingdom come. God could just go, I'm going to bring my kingdom to earth, but he's chosen because of his deep love for us to invite us into a conversation, invite us into a relationship, invite us to partner with him in bringing his kingdom to earth. So why does prayer matter? Because as we pray, we bring God's kingdom to earth. And when we pray for protection, you know how in the last chapter he said, Satan, uh, what did you prevented call us. Accuser prevented us. Does that, are we praying for protection because Satan is accusing us or making accusations against us or he's coming at us? Is that the thought there? Yes. So we're praying Uh, daily for protection from his accusations, from his... I think it's both natural and spiritual. Keep remembering that, as I said a few times in this episode, the natural forces of this world that are allied against God are allied with the spirits of darkness. There is a link between the two and we need to be aware of both. We're not wrestling against the human beings. We're wrestling against principalities and powers in the heavenly realms, Ephesians will tell us. However, the outworking of that is very often through natural uh, humans and their actions towards us. So we need to pray for protection from them because they are being animated by the enemy. So I don't think you can separate out it as much into uh, as, as succinctly and separately as we would assume. They, they need six, I can't separate as much as we separately. I used the word separate <laughs> twice then, didn't I? Um, I, I don't think we separate them, them out. Though. I separated yeah. them, okay. <laughs> yes, I think we need to allow for a blending of the two a lot more than we probably do. Yeah, I don't really pray much for protection mm-hmm. at all. Uh, and it's terrible because I have kids and I guess you should. Yes, pray for them. Yes, so we, we need to realise that we're in a spiritual battle, but partly I would say the reason we're not praying for protection is maybe we're unaware of how comfortable we are. Or are we unaware of how we are unprotected if we don't pray? Yes, maybe so. Yes, that's right. And if we were suffering a higher degree of persecution like the Thessalonians or Thessalonians were, those in Thessalonica, we maybe would be more attuned to praying for protection. So back to what I was saying before, if you're in a place that's suffering persecution, you're more likely to pray for this than those of us that are comfortable. Hmm. I'm going to think more about that. Mm-hmm. Do so. Yeah. <laughs> Dwell on I it. I will. Chew it over. <laughs> okay, verses 11 to 13 here. May God our Father and our Lord Jesus bring us to you very soon. Paul wants to visit them. Yep. And may the Lord make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow. He is um, praising them because they have loved one another, yep. right? Uh, but here he's just, what verse? Oh, okay. Here he's just encouraging them to, eat, to go even further. Go beyond. Go beyond. Love more. How one does that? How, how does one love more when one already loves? Deep question. Uh, the closer we stay to God, the more we will reflect him because his love is infinite. 
I mean, I think Romans 5, 5, God has poured his agape into our hearts by the Holy Spirit. So I think the closer we stay to the Lord, the more agape, the more unconditional love we'll be able to show. It'll overflow out of us. But none of us have arrived yet. So they might be loving, but there's always room for more love. We've all got room for more love, to love others more than we do now. I don't think do any you, of us have ever arrived. No. Do you think we have to admit that we are capable of more love? We're capable of loving more different types of people, uh, but we're capable of loving the person even though the person may have done terrible things. Is this where you're going? Or Yes, but I would say slightly change the word because when you say we are capable, I, I immediately think, and maybe our listeners would, that we have the ability within us to love. Good point. I would say point. we need to remind ourselves that God has poured his love into our heart and therefore we are able, not because of our, in, more in spite of our own capability <laughs> or lack yeah. thereof, because we have been filled with the spirit of agape, now we are capable in him to be able to love others. So it's looking to him for the ability to love as opposed to forcing ourselves to choose to love others in our own strength. Oh, so the more we seek him, the more he softens our heart and somehow supernaturally softens our heart towards others. Yes, which sounds a little bit like delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart, doesn't it? The more a we little gi- bit. Yeah, the more we give him, the more we focus on him, the more of him will come out of us. Are we talking in circles here going back? <laughs> it's a common theme all the way through, isn't it? Yeah, it is. Yeah, it, I, and I'm going to go on a bit further with this. May he, as a result, make your heart strong, blameless and holy as you stand before God in verse 13. Did I say that? Our Father, before God, our Father, and when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. I've written that down wrong. No, that's right. You read it right. Oh, did I? When our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people. Yep. With all his holy people. May okay. he, as a result, make your heart strong, blameless and holy as you stand before God our Father, when our Lord Jesus comes again with all his holy people, amen. Okay. Two points here. Coming again with all his holy people. That's the second coming. Mm-hmm. Uh, holy people are his church. Uh, I think in that context, I suspect it's talking about those holy people who've gone before. So it would be those that have maybe have been martyred. In, in the, Sorry, I was yeah, I was speaking of deceased church. Yes, yeah. I think so, but I think it's probably to me it's probably that and all the saints of the Old Testament. I think that's what he's trying to say. All okay. those that have all those in heaven, lived, all those who have people. lived faithfully, waiting for the coming of the kingdom. But I think definitely there's definitely a sense in which this is about those that have died and been martyred even recently in their church. Okay, we haven't actually seen that referred to no, yet, not have we? Yet. Coming no, up, it's coming up. So my question is: Does this little statement here imply that? Love for one another can or will or does make us blameless and holy. May he as a result make your heart strong, blameless and holy. I think you're putting the cart because, before the horse. Why is that? Uh, the Lord make your love for one another, one another and all people grow and overflow just as our love for you overflows. May he as a result make your heart strong, blameless as I see. As a result of your love or is uh, it I as... See. Yeah, that's... You'd want to you'd want to look at it in different versions. You'd need a Greek scholar to tell you what's the cause and what's the effect of the sentence structure there. Because what you're saying is it seems like the love for others is actually the catalyst for your heart being strong, blameless, and holy. Whereas I, but the cause of the love, strong, blameless, and holy is actually he. The, the reference there is he, God, making mm-hmm. you that way. So is it the fact that you love one another that makes you 
blameless and holy, or is it God who makes you blameless and holy and therefore you love one another? Is that what you're asking? Which is the kind of yeah? Which comes first? Yeah. Uh, are you asking me which one comes asking, first? I'm asking you, is that what you're asking, which one comes first? Is that what you're asking? What am I asking? <laughs> <laughs> I think that's what I'm saying. What are we asking? I think I think we need to see that the ability to love one another comes from God yep. and the ability to be blameless and holy comes from God and the blameless and holiness is definitely linked. The outworking of that blameless and holiness is linked to our ability to love unconditionally, to love others. But I would also say the reciprocal is true, is that we can only love others because we have been made blameless and holy by God. I think he's the source of okay. it all. Okay. And as God moves in our hearts and we become more like him and we love others more, that means we don't hurt the image of God in others yes. more. So we are therefore less we are blameless, less blameless and more holy. And therefore we're more, more holy. More, 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 yeah, less blameless, more blame. More blameless, <laughs> more blameless, well, and more holy. We're yes, less bla- oh, you know yeah, what I mean. Yes, except so th- there's you're getting into the question: is there is our action causing us to be more holy and more blameless, or does holiness precipitate the ability to live? And Ephesians would say, for it's by grace that you've been saved through faith, not because of your your ability to love others, not because of your good works, but you've been saved by grace. Now you're able to do holy things. Oh, and, and here's another thought. You know how this is all about bringing the kingdom of God to heaven and the kingdom of God at the end of the days is going to be blameless and holy. Yes. So the more we uh, love each other, the more we bring about the kingdom of God, thus making our lives blameless yes. and our world that we live in more holy. Correct. I think that's all in there. So it depends <laughs> on how you determine the blamelessness. I mean, ultimately, true blamelessness and holiness is a gift. But, but if we only focus on the gift, we lose the expectation on us to live holy and blameless lives. And Peter will pick, we haven't got this Peter scripture, but Peter will say, live such godly lives among the pagans that they may see your good deeds and that you may speed the second coming of Christ. Speed the second coming of Christ. That you may hasten the day, it says. So in some way, Peter seems to be alluding to, let's put it this way. Jesus says the time is set by the Father. You know, it's not for you to know the days and times the Father has set by his own authority. So in one sense, we go, oh, that day's set. It's going to happen. We've got no control over it. It's just going to happen. Peter would say, no, the way you conduct your life can hasten the coming of Christ. I'm so glad you say that because I have a question. Do you know, well, remember in the Exodus, when the Israelites are brought out of um, Egypt, they can go, they're meant to go into the Holy Land, the Promised Land within a few weeks, but they actually behave in such a way that they delay it. they slow the delay, the coming of the kingdom. So have we, as a church, delayed the second coming of Christ? I think we have. That's what Peter wants us to be aware of, is that our inability or our failure to live the way that we should be living, in some sense, is delaying the coming of Christ. Okay, because I thought the delaying of the of the coming of Christ was because the world hadn't the whole world hadn't been preached to. Yeah, partly, <laughs> that's a little bit scripture taken out of context, oh, but part of that is there. So this is just a different perspective Peter's coming from. He's just tr- in some ethereal way Peter seems to be indicating that the way we live our lives can um, usher in the ki- coming of the kingdom. Okay, and so- our failure to do so seems to in some way delay it, and yet that does not remove the sovereignty of God for setting that date. God and his infinite wisdom, it's the whole predestination versus free will thing again. So what Peter is essentially saying is 
our lack of belief, our lack of faith can actually stop us from living a holy place. Yes. It's yes, that's right. And but Peter's more focused on our action than our belief. Okay. He's actually focused on how you're living out your faith. Oh my gosh. Okay. Round and round we go. Yeah, hey? That's right. All right. Okay, do you know it took eight years before Paul actually returned to Thessalonica? Uh okay. Yes, yeah. it took some time. I haven't ever okay. thought about how long it was. Because his self will wanted to bring him back there. Yes, all the time, but it took him a long time to get there. But yep. he had to wait and he had to wait in faith and love and obedience and to be guided back by the Messiah's yep. hand. So eight years of waiting. Eight years, hey. So there you go. That's a long time. Hey, verses ten to thirteen. I know you're looking up something there. I'm just, and I can't no, keep wait going. To hear about I'm just it. I'm just finding exact quote of what Peter says. But, but they're actually a good indication of what to pray for. Okay, let me read, read it. Read it to me. Verses ten to thirteen. Night and day we pray earnestly for you, asking God to let us see you again to fill the to fill the gaps in your faith. Yes. May God, our Father and our Lord Jesus, bring us to you very soon, mm-hmm. and may the Lord. Make your love for one another and for all people grow and overflow just as our love for you overflow overflows. May he is all just stuff we just said. May he as a result make your heart strong, blameless, and holy. Right. So this is something that we can That's pray a pattern for. for prayer. Yeah. So let's you- to perfect what's lacking. Yep. Uh, to make the Lord direct the way. Yep. Which causes us to grow in love mm-hmm. and so that he may establish us and make us holy. Yep. Thus bringing about, Thus the, bringing kingdom about the kingdom of God. Of God. Yeah, to that's pray good. for all those things. Yep, that's great. I think that's a good little pattern of prayer there. Yeah, and it's showing that there is a responsibility, don't you think, of the believer. There's a responsibility now to pray for others. Pray for others, yes. Yep. But also then – sorry, God. I was going to say, and then to pray that over ourselves so that we live that way. Yes. That we actually do – we take responsibility for our own actions. Yep. And those of our church and um, to bring – to hasten the kingdom. Yeah, and also there's an acknowledgement that a lot of this is done because of the Redeemer, you know, like Christ, he enables it. He mm. enables these things. So there's we have to believe and allow him to work. Yep. yep. I agree. That, yep, yeah. that's a good point. Yep, that's it's both. It's us praying, us us doing, but also understanding that all our doing is only done in the strength of Jesus. Yep. And here, 13, he talks about again the parousia. Um, when our Father, as you stand before God our Father, when our Lord Jesus Christ comes again with all his holy people. It's Perusia. So he yep. ends, he ends, did he end he's the second chapter? He ended the second chapter with coming and he's ending the third, third chapter one. with coming. Yep. All right. And then he's really going to get stuck into it in the next one. Okay, that's where he starts to fire up a bit more about the second coming, I suppose. Yeah. Yep. Let's head back to another psalm before we All right, we get we'll go there. to psalm. I was just going to say, yes, it, Peter just says in Second Peter 3.12, He's talking about destruction of the world, judgment of God. He says, since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should leave, live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day, he will set the heavens on fire. So it's a picture of judgment yep. and all that sort of stuff. But there's definitely a sense in which our lives will hasten the kingdom of God. All, all right. right. Thank Where you. are we going? Psalm what? I don't know. Just Psalm something. There. We'll get there. Psalm 54 is actually an answered prayer for deliverance from adversaries. Mm-hmm. An answered prayer. An answered prayer. So this yes. is this is actually we, after it's happened, you say? Well, we know that it is answered because I see. Uh, you can read this in context of 1 Samuel 23 and right. 26 because it's actually about, and it even says in the psalm here, regarding the time the Ziphites came and said to Saul, we know where David is hiding. 
It's interesting because I have never thought about it the way you said answered prayer. I When I see a psalm like this, I picture David sitting there writing this psalm in the middle of the crisis. Do you? You don't mm. picture him? Res- retrospectively writing it? Um, I don't know. Not normally. I mean, maybe he was, but I often picture it as what he's feeling and expressing right in that moment because it doesn't seem to be looking back. It seems to be capturing his feelings right at that moment. Did you see the word interlude in there? Yeah. Okay, so I reckon he wrote the first bit while uh, he was... <laughs> I think... Do you so, know what interlude is? Well... Do you know what the... When you see interlude, you not know what that when is? I, what you tell me in this it's, context. It's the word sila. Sila, yes. And scholars don't know... They don't know. ...what it means. <laughs> My pastor, Margaret, she used to say to me, it just means... Whenever you see it, it just means chew it over. Chew it over. Okay, okay so um, But a lot of scholars think it's just a musical term. It could even just be a musical interlude that's just a, a little pause to... <laughs> strum the harp and then carry on. They don't know, but it does fit that it's a moment of um, reflection. Okay. Chew, o- chew over what you just said. Right. Because okay? I was making a joke. I yes, wasn't I being serious. Yes. That but come rescue, come with great power, O God, and rescue me. So I, I That sounds like he's right in the middle of it. Right in the middle of yeah. it, yeah. Defend okay. me with your might. Listen to my prayer, O God. Pay attention to my plea. For strangers are attacking me. Violent people are trying to kill me. They care nothing of God, for God. And then there's the interlude. interlude. Selah. Selah. And then, but God is my helper. So God mm-hmm. has answered the prayer. The Lord keeps me alive. So in this, um, in these verses, uh, 1 Samuel 23 says, for verse 14, David now stayed in the strong, he's, he's running from Saul and yep. he's in the strongholds of the wilderness and in the hill country of Ziph, yep. which is where you get the Ziphites. Which is where the Ziphites come from. And Saul was hunting him day after day, but God didn't let Saul find him. And then one twenty three nineteen. But now the men of Ziph went to Saul in so Gibeon. We know where he's hiding. We know where he's hiding. So it's not a betrayal uh, because he is not in. They're not friends, are they? The Ziphites and David. He's no, just living no. in that land. He's just living in that land. They go nowhere. Where is it? They probably think there's some financial gain to be yeah. had for them by yeah. letting dobbing dobbing him into Saul. Yes. Yeah, so come down, Saul, whenever you're ready, and we'll catch him and hand him over to you. And 1 Samuel 26, now some men from Ziph came to Saul and they told him where David was hiding. And so Saul takes 3,000 people and goes to hunt him down. 3,000, I think it's, I haven't got of it in front of Israel's me, 3,000 elite, elite soldiers. Troops. Yes, that's right, yeah. that's what it says. <laughs> Went to hunt him down and this is when Saul was camping along the road and where David goes in and he sees them sleeping and Saul and David goes in and doesn't kill Saul takes when he could have. Water he takes jug. the spear and water jug. That's the story. Yeah. So here, God is his helper. The Lord keeps me alive in verse 3. And may the evil plans my enemies, which is Saul, mm-hmm. be turned against them. Do as you promised and put an end to them, Lord. Well, I added Lord there. <laughs> oh, Isn't it <laughs> interesting that he says put an end to them? He's praying that. But then when he gets a chance to put an end to him, he doesn't. He doesn't. Yeah. <laughs> Isn't that fascinating? Yeah. So that tells me there's more to this sense of justice that David has than than him taking justice into his own hands. Yes. It's it's God, you end Saul's regime. I do not do it because he's the Lord's anointed. So the, vic- the ultimate victory over injustice is in the hands of God. We should think that as all these conversations we've just had about the injustices of the world, we should think about the fact that it's not upon us to be the instruments of God's yeah. justice. It's That's up to the Lord. Our part is to show, well, like David, show a degree of mercy and compassion, even at his own risk to his own life. Because it, let's face it, in the natural, he could have killed Saul and probably become king and would have been okay. But he chose to trust his justice to God 
at his own peril because he ended up having to flee back into the desert mm, again. Yeah. And you can, the last Psalm that we just read, which was what, Psalm 37? 37, 30, 37 yeah. yep. Yeah, you can see that here. Mm. You know, David would be wrestling with why is Saul prospering? Why yes. is Saul the wicked? He's trying to kill me. Yep. But, uh, and as you just said, uh, I will wait and let you. Yep, which is actually what he says in Psalm in one Samuel twenty three. There, it does. He says, "I'm going to leave it up to you, Lord." I think he says something. Is that in the? Is that in this story or the 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 other time with the cutting of the robe where he he says, um, "You know, ultimately God will be the judge between us. Let Him judge between you and me." It may be that the Lord has seen my compassion to you today. It's this story. Yep, maybe the Lord has seen my compassion towards you. Um, should we go and offer a sacrifice yes, and have this right. Oh, and look, interestingly, here he says it in six: "I will sacrifice a voluntary there offering you to you. I will praise your name, O Lord, for it is good for you have rescued me from my troubles and helped me to triumph over my enemies." There you go. Yeah, it so, all connects. You see that? You read some chapter here, some and, obscure psalm. Read yeah. this, especially the psalms that tell you when it's written. Good to go back and read them in their context. <laughs> That'll help you to make more sense of it. Yeah. And then, but also if you can read Psalm 37 in connection to this, yes. they all relate. This yep. is David's life. He's writing these Psalms. He's yep. writing That's stories right. about his stories. And as much as possible, I've tried to put these Psalms and these readings together in some sense of, you know, order that can help you. Yeah. In your study, even though we're getting towards the end of the year now, and next year we'll have a different reading plan, but you can go back and look at these in the order they're in. What else you got there? I have nothing else. Sort of it's sums very up. short. Okay. Um, just I'm just surprised at how much 37 uh, can be thought of in this. Yes, chapter. that's right. There's a link there. Like I saw in between 32 and 51. Yeah. Um, it's very similar here. 37, and you said 35, 36, 37 all flood yes. together, and then there's a link to Psalm 54. Yeah. It all links up, huh? Yeah. Common themes. Let's go back to the second coming. All right, back to the second coming. One Thessalonians four. This is Paul sort of makes a plea for purity to the people in this. Typical Paul starts with finally, dear brothers and sisters, and then he just does two more chapters. I know. <laughs> He's just like any preacher. <laughs> I'm wrapping up now. This finally, is my first landing. Yes. Now Paul's finally, very good at that. finally, I'm going to tell you all the things you really need to know. It's going to take a long time. Okay. As we, but we've already taught you. Finally, reminder: we've already taught you this anyway. Yeah. Yes, that's right. <laughs> that's what it says. Live in a way that pleases God. You live this way already and we encourage you to do so even more for you remember what we taught you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. God's will is for you to be holy, so stay away from sexual sin. Huh? Why is he talking about this? Uh, I think it's a big part of Roman culture. It's just it's a big part of destructiveness of sin, uh, destructiveness of behaviour, so he's throwing it in the mix there. I'd say that would be my reason. Um Keep going. I'll have. A He's look. specifically talking to them, though, right? Yeah, specifically seen, talking about them. They have. They're leading this great life. Yeah, because great church. They, they are. They are brand new Christians, who would be normally steeped in Rome, Greco-Roman culture. They're Gentiles, where sexual sin was just an ordinary part of life, and so he's saying that's destructive. Avoid that. I think that's what's going on. Okay. Well, I did a little bit of research, yeah, not go much, ahead. not go much. Ahead. And somebody that I read, who I, I don't know why I didn't quote them here. I should have done that. Um, they were saying that in this world, there was actually no marriage and that sexual relationships were held to be as, and an enjoyment, sexual enjoyment was held to be as natural and as reasonable as eating and drinking. Yeah. Okay. I'm not sure about the no marriage thing. I mean, Roman culture had marriage in it, 
but definitely, yes, definitely well, meaning, free sexual relationship. Yeah, free, not, that's what that means. That's right. That's what that yeah. means. That was definitely a very normal part of Greco-Roman culture and it was regarded as normal. However, Paul would say it was in God's plan and it causes it causes fractures in relationships. Yeah, that's what he goes on to a point here. He argues in a way that um, this sort of living actually hurts others. Yes, I think that's what he's saying. And it mostly hurts women. Yeah, I think that's the point. It ultimately does. And and to live in this way is degrading to women and dishonours God, um, whereas the Christian teaching is that women and the Bible is that women should be sanctified and honoured. Yes. Rather. But the world. That Ra- the, the world. They the little the women. Culture. They became yeah. sexual objects, I think, and, and children and all of that sort of stuff. Yes. So I think that's what he's what he's doing. All right. So let me just read it. So stay away from all sexual sin. Then each of you will control his own body and live in holiness and honor, not in lustful passion, like the pagans who do not know God. So that's the people living around them. Yep. Okay. Never harm or cheat a Christian brother in this matter by violating his wife for the Lord avenges all such sins as we have solemnly warned you before. God's called us to live holy lives, not impure lives. So basically he's Am I right in saying he's asking them to look differently, live differently to the people around them? Yeah, and he's he's fully aware that that won't be easy for them, and that in, that in itself may cause misunderstanding <laughs> at best and persecution at worst. Is that why he says here in? It's, it's difficult, but verse 8, Therefore, anyone who refuses to live by these rules is not disobeying human teaching but is rejecting God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Mm, it's pretty harsh, isn't it? It's it pretty is strong. Uh, but he's saying it because he knows what's he knows that the pure sexual ethic is actually a big part of healthy relational life. See, we make it – we separate out the sexual component of it. Even in, in today's world, we go, oh, it's just sex or whatever. But but Judeo-Christian ethics says that it's not just sex. It's actually – that's part of the human psyche. It's part of relational health and to just de- – just to separate out sex from the deeper relationship ultimately will lead to mistreatment of the weaker one, whether that's women or children or, you know, or different even within men, men within, with men in different contexts. All of that, um, usually when it comes to uh, sexual misconduct, the strong will usually end up oppressing the weak. The pornography industry is about, it's what... Uh, the sex trade is about in, you know, sex trafficking. It's, there is the problem right there. When it's the richer, it's the powerful oppressing the weak. And he's also painting a picture here of a different kind of sexual relationship rather that it's meaningful, right? Yes. It's not just some it's, attachment to life. Yeah. It actually has, it carries more meaning, which has always been the Jewish view. Steeped in Judaism was the belief that Adam knew his wife and the two became one flesh. That was deeply steeped in their theology. So he's not saying sex is bad. No. He's saying that there's actually more to it than what your culture yes. is. Um, That's well put. There's more to li- it. Yeah, there's more to it. Yeah, and you there's are, more you- respect and there's more love and there's uh, honouring the image of God in others. That's it. You got it. In it. That's a good way to put it. So this is this is ChatGPT's answer to my question. Obviously, this is not one in one commentary. This is a summing up what commentary, what other commentators have said throughout by searching the internet. It says... Paul is writing to a young Christian community in Thessalonica, providing them with moral and theological standard to help them grow in their faith. It inclu- section one, chap- sorry, the beginning, 
up to chapter four is focused on stuff we've talked about, living a life pleasing to God, which includes a whole called a holiness and sanctification. In the Greco-Roman world, sexual ethics was notably lax by Judeo-Christian standards and sexual immorality was often culturally accepted or even intertwined with pagan religious practices. By specifically mentioning sexual sin, Paul is addressing the critical area where the ethical standards of the prevailing culture and the Christian ethic diverged sharply. He's underscoring that sanctification involves the whole person, including one's sexual conduct, and living a life pleasing to God requires a departure from the sexual norms of the surrounding culture. So while the mention of the sexual immorality may seem abrupt, it's an intentional move by Paul to highlight the importance of ethical conduct in all aspects of life as integral to Christian sanctification. He's also elevating women too. Yes. Right? Yeah, that hasn't mentioned that, but he's talking about that wholeness of let's not let sexual desire and the the misuse of that um, cause the weak to be treated poorly, which is what will happen, women, children, so on. So he's giving women a value that they don't necessarily have in this culture. Which we'll see in the household codes in Ephesians and so on. Yes, that's a big part of what he's thinking about, I think. Okay, and it was obviously very important because this is the only... The only mention of it? No, not not the only mention. This is the only sort of negative aspect of their faith. Or yes, not the I right think, way well, to say not, it. Yes, it's more that he's saying don't go back there. He's not. Yeah, he's not chastening them for anything. No, But no. this is the one thing that the he brings thing, up, yeah. so it would have been significant. He's probably fully aware that it's part of their culture. They've been, yep. you know, they've been taught that, you know, if it feels good, do it give in to your sexual desires. So it would take a lot of unlearning to see things differently. Yeah. yeah. And it's the idea of loving and respecting each other, which he sums up here in verse 9, but we don't we don't really need to write to you about the importance of loving each other. Because you guys have known it. You know it. Yeah. You know you need to just know it in this area. In this area, yeah. Don't You might not be aware of it, but the way you conduct yourself sexually is actually going to be a big part of the fulfilment of this. It could be just an area where they just have it input, maybe in their own mind, they had not even put the two together. Which makes sense. If you've just been taught that something is perfectly normal, you need to be taught that it's not normal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, in order to see the the dysfunction that it causes. Well, that there's more value here. Yes, there's you, more. You're here. not looking deep enough into this yeah. purely physical act. It's not purely physical. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Yep. I can understand that because when you do read it, you're like, oh, well, where's he it talking seems about out of this? Context, it's yes. out of context because yes. the letter's so lovely and yeah. you know, a little bit rambling at times. <laughs> yeah. He seems oh, wait, to repeat himself me. a bit. Yeah. <laughs> Circular motion you've been talking yes, about. Yeah. yeah. And here, verse 11, make it your goal to live a quiet life. This doesn't mean to be not talkative, you know, don't let your views out or whatever. It just means to not live a – is that right? It just means to not – well, I put it this way, quiet life uh, – yeah, minding your own business. <laughs> should have just read the next line. Yeah, working minding with your Minding your hands. own business and working with your own hands. So a not quiet life would be a life that is involved in gossip and um, – And stirring up dissension. Stirring up dissension, yeah, okay. So this, I'm thinking Babel, Paul, uh, Jeremiah's words to Babylon here. Settle down, work, plant house, build houses, plant gardens, work for the good and the prosperity of the land I put you in. Yeah. These guys are in a Babylon. Thessalonica is a new Babylon under Roman rule and he's saying, settle down. Let your good works be evident to all. Live a quiet life. Live a life that people would go, I respect that. I might not understand it, but I respect it. They're they're good people. Um, And that in itself will ultimately be a witness. And then you'll always, as Peter will say, you'll always always be ready to give a reason for the hope that you have. People will look at you and the way you conduct your life and they'll go, that's different. I want that. Tell me about that and you'll be ready. 
to tell them about Jesus. Mm. When I read this, I was confronted with the not quiet life on social media. Yes. That the opposite of the, this. It's the opposite of it. Yeah. And I was just thinking, wow, that is a loud space. Yes. There's a lot of armchair warriors there or keyboard warriors, sorry, I should say. You know, just, yep. and it can get you so angry and so stressed and so caught up. Christians out there, what Jeannie is saying is really important. You believe it not if you're out there spouting one view or another in an argumentative way that isn't inviting conversation. That's just, this is my view, take it like a lump it or just sharing your view with people and just leaving it there and not inviting conversation. You're not living a quiet life. No, not <laughs> you're at all. You're adding to the noise. Yeah. Not only are you adding to the noise, you're allowing the noise to disrupt yes, your that's peacefulness. Right. That's the other way around. You know, you can go on there and in a second you've gone down a rabbit sudden, hole. Suddenly we're frustrated. Stress, anxiety, worry. Yep. War, yep. disturbing images that you can't get out of your mind and all sorts of stuff. Yep. And and there's nothing about minding your own business on social media. <laughs> I'm right. looking at other people's business, yes. promoting my own business. and um, yeah. I, But I am working with my hands, at least my thumb, not my <laughs> hands. with my thumbs. <laughs> yeah, I'm doing that part. I've got one out of three, right? Yeah. <laughs> working with my hands. Oh, dear, that's funny. But it's true. There's a heart behind it. I'm not saying don't be on social media. I'm not saying... There isn't a place to have conversation, all that sort of stuff. We use social media. I use it. The church uses it. We use it to promote our podcast, all sorts of things. The question is, what's the heart behind it? If we're just trying to be antagonistic and argumentative or shouting our view from one end of the ring, that's when I think we're not living a quiet life. Yeah. Quiet life does not mean you have to give in. I think a quiet life means a life that um, where your conduct invites interest and conversation from others. Yeah. And verse 12, then people who are not Christians will respect the way you there live. There you go. There it is right there. And you will not need to depend on others. So if I'm living a quiet life, I don't need to, and I'm not posting and worrying, then I don't need to worry about how many likes I get. That's right. So I'm not depending on others for my self-esteem. Self-esteem. Yeah. That's great. Okay. All right. <laughs> now we're going to get into more end time stuff, are we? Oh, the hope of the resurrection. So here we go. Now, dear brothers, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died. So obviously people who have yep. died and they had a big – they were worried about people. Um, were they just dead in the grave? Yep. Why hasn't Christ come again? Right? Is yes, this exactly. Is going on? Okay. Well, or I think I was reading something recently, listening to something on um, a podcast recently about, second, about Thessalonians actually, and whatever they were saying, it was something along the lines of – they may they may have had a belief that those who had died had somehow missed out on the kingdom. Yeah, right. Okay, so somehow, oh, they've died. They weren't part of God's plan. and they, These were their loved ones. And Paul's trying to say, no, just because they died doesn't mean they missed out on the kingdom. Do we, you know, when Jesus says today, he's on the cross, he says, today you will be with me in paradise. Why is it then that Paul says to sort of say here that people are asleep in the Lord? Aren't we meant to... Be with the Lord straight away today in paradise. Why are we now asleep? I think it's a figure of speech um, that probably it comes over from Jewish thought. Um, sort of Old Testament Jewish thought was there was more of a doctrine of soul sleep that people somehow slept whole sheol thing. They slept in the grave, awaiting the resurrection. They were awaiting the vindication. So I mean, Jesus said Lazarus has fallen asleep. So I think it's just a figure of speech for death. Okay. Because we should say as a way there, of saying there is eternal life. 
Yes, I think so. That it's temporary. Death is temporary. If you sleep, because the disciples will say to Jesus in John 10 uh, with Lazarus, oh, if he's asleep, or John 11, where is John 11? He says, you know, if he's asleep, he'll wake up. And Jesus says, no, Lazarus is dead. So there was a figure of speech there that referred to death. Okay. And that's the word. So in verse 4, chapter 4, verse 13, where it's translated those who have believers who have died, the actual Greek says those who have fallen asleep. All right. Okay. Now he, he compares people here who are not Christians. He basically says in verse 13, they don't have any hope. So um, yeah. but in a backwards way of saying that, we want you to know what will happen to the believers who have died so you will not grieve like people who have no hope. Yeah. So those who believe in Christ have a hope. Yep. So for since we believe that Jesus died and was raised to life again, we also believe that when Jesus returns, God will bring back with him the believers who have died. Yep. That implies the believers are with him at that point. I think so, yeah. Definitely okay. seems to, doesn't it? Yep. Yep. We tell you this directly from the Lord. Okay. We who are still living when the Lord returns will not meet him ahead of those who have died. For the Lord himself will come down from heaven with a commanding shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet call of God. First, the Christians who have died will rise from the graves. Then together with them, we who are still alive and remain on the earth will be caught up in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. Then we will be with the Lord forever. So encourage each other with these Lord with these words. What is that? What is what? All of that. What is that? What, you want to dig into the actual doctrine <laughs> of what he's saying there? Okay. He's talking about the fact that at the second coming, there will be a victorious trumpet blast. The God will usher in his kingdom. Jesus will come back. And so it, he's going to right every wrong. Those that were dead are going to come be resurrected back to life. So get excited about that. Encourage one another with that good news. Even though you've lost loved ones, even though it's hard right now, stay the course. I don't see that. It, I mean, I know what you're asking, I think, is that do we dig into all of the doctrine of the timing and the resurrection? No, no, <laughs> Is no. that what you're saying? I was just, it's weird to read. If I didn't know anything about this, um, which I happen to know a bit because right. of how I grew up, the yeah, world I grew up yep. in. But to read it, you'd be like, what the heck is going on? Okay. Okay. So we have Christ returning. Yes. Which he said he would. Did he Jesus he say would. he was going to return? Yes, he did. And we have this multiple times written across the Bible. Yes. All right. And here he is. He's going to return with a host of believers yes. behind him. Yep. And there he is in the air with those believers. Yes. But we're also going to see people rise from graves. Uh, yes. And then those people who are alive will then rise up and meet him in the air. Yes. This is the rapture. No. <laughs> How do you know? Uh, what I'm saying is that's not the doctrine of the rapture. What's the doctrine of the rapture? Yeah. Be as quick as you can because I don't have all be. day. I'm trying to be. Yes, okay, so the doctrine of the rapture is, yes, in one sense this is what the doctrine of the rapture says, that they're saying this is happening before the final coming. This is the first part of the second coming. This is second coming part version one, if you like, that Jesus is coming back and those who are alive, the Christians will be left by, the Christians will be raptured up, meet him in the air, and there'll be a whole lot of people left on the earth. They're building that doctrine out of lots of different places. Right. Okay, that's the doctrine of the rapture. What I mean when I say that's not what 
is happening is I don't think that's what Paul, and I now realise that's not what Paul was referring to. I was taught that doctrine, but that's not what Paul's referring What's to. What's he referring to? He's referring to when Jesus comes back to consummate everything, that there will be a ushering in of all who have served him faithfully. They will all be gathered to him, those that have died and those that are alive. Because they will, obviously the point is there'll be some who are still alive whenever this Whenever this happens, that Jesus returns and ushers in his new kingdom, there will be humans alive. We will all be gathered to him, alive or dead. So the question is... The question is around the timing. The timing. Does this the happen? Or the order or the sequence. Before, yes. Before the great tribulation. Some is, people believe the rapture, which you said yes. happens before, before the, the great tribulation. The great yeah. tribulation. And other people believe that there is no pre-tribulation rapture, which is called... What's the special term for that? Pre-millennial pre-tribulation. What are you saying? Pre-tribulation. Yeah. Uh, so there's... There's pre-tribulational rapture, which is what I was taught, which is that it happens prior so to Christians the seven-year tribulation. Christians are removed from the earth and they don't go through the seven years They don't go through the seven years. Then there is a different view called the mid-tribulational rapture, which says Christians go through the first half, the first three and, and, and a half years and, and pulled out yep. halfway through. And then there is amillennialism. Sorry, a, there is, sorry, then there is, yeah, amillennialism, which is to do with the, more to do with the millennium. So there's pre-tribulational, pre-millennial. Mid-tribulation or pre-millennial. This okay. is, this okay. is all different perspectives on end times. Um, and amillennialism says that, um, you know, there is no lit, there is no literal millennial thousand-year reign of Christ. That's just a figure of speech. So it's to do with there's two aspects to it. When the rapture happens, this is what is described here, and when um, what this, it, what is the process for Christ inaugurating his kingdom on the earth. They're all the different perspectives that Christians have had throughout time. Because at some point he has to get all the Christians together in this new kingdom. All, right? of, all his saints. All his saints. I think so. So that is what we have thought of as this. I'm going to go back. I'm going to speak of this as the pre-tribulation because I think mm-hmm. that most evangelical Christians believe that. Those would have been raised on left-behind theology. Yes, yes, so that we go but into that's the not a new, I used to think that was the oldest form of theology. I've now realised that's not the case. It's a very, very new theology in that form. Yeah, so we go into the air and then we vanish. We go up and we spend seven years, still the seven, in, years. seven years hanging out with Jesus while all this horrible stuff happens at, on the earth. Yeah, at the end of the seven years, Jesus comes back and then has the thousand years. Yes. Okay, and then there's the final battle, 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 yes. battle at yep. the end yep. where the kingdom is then established forever. Yep. Exactly. And I can argue all those scriptures. I just don't see them in that f- format anymore. People get so freaky about all this, don't they? Yes, they do. Yeah. But it says here at the end, so encourage other with each other with these words. So I the have. point, the point <laughs> is <laughs> Go on. the point is not discourage one another. The point is encourage one another. The point is, in the end we win. Regardless of how you see this mapped out, the, the point here is Paul is not trying to map out a a sequence where we should be looking at the Bible and the news at the same time. He's trying to Map out as map out an encouragement to us that goes the kingdom of God is coming and when it does it will be final it will be absolute and you want to be in that kingdom so stay the course. I'm so glad you point out that verse 18. So encourage each other with these words because I was never encouraged with these words. I grew up in the entire system of like be terrified of this time and so I have a big problem with those people so, who miss that, miss that verse point. so it's interesting others. though the encouragement I, I I had the slightly different view there in the sense that the encouragement was hey if you're a Christian you're gonna you don't have to worry about all that because you're gonna be gone <laughs> that's oh, the encouragement you don't have to worry about the rapture 
you don't have to worry about the tribulation because God's going to extract you out before the tribulation happens, before God brings his judgment. And look, that sounds appealing and it makes sense, um, it, you know, in that sense of it. Well, I live right. I should be extracted from that. But that doesn't seem to be fitting with the context of what these people are saying. These people are living through tribulation. They're living through hardship. And Paul's more, Paul's words in the New Testament's words are more you will be saved through tribulation rather than you will be escape from tribulation. Um, I think that's the difference of opinion there. And they just pluck one or two scriptures out. Um, says you will be protected from the coming coming wrath. There's a scripture about that. They go, oh, that's a rapture scripture. Yeah, it would be great. I do. I could get very freaky with all of this because the movies I've watched yeah, and what I've been told and the dreams I've yeah. had. And uh, by the way, in my dreams, I'm always one of the ones left behind. <laughs> so, so that's deeply entrenched in deeply your psyche. Entrenched. That fear. Actually, it's even worse. The rapture happens, and I start to rise up, and I rise up, and I rise up, and then I hit a point. <laughs> And I start to sink You're and I sink in. and I sink. Yeah. So, Well, you're walking. I'm often walking around the shops. It used to be like I'm walking around the shops and Jill's disappeared. In the sh- she was in the supermarket and now she's gone. <laughs> Have I missed that, it? That, that happened. <laughs> oh, dear. Okay. Yeah, so, dear. so we've uh, all been there. I, yeah. And I, I do. I, my encouraging thing was when I went and read the Bible um, front to back over and over and over again. And I didn't see the... F- the things that I was taught, I couldn't find the theology uh, okay. that See, I was taught. I can taught. find it. I can st- I can teach you. Well, no, I, I strictly yes, but I could see it, but I could see other things. Yes, that's the point. And yes. suddenly, I felt very encouraged. So I was encouraged. So you were encouraged. I was encouraged. Good. It gave you a new lease of life. Yes. Yeah. And look, we're not going to unpack all the different views. We will do that next year. So stay tuned. We oh, will. Great. We will talk to. We, put Revelation back in its context to the first century church and we'll see what it was saying there rather than re- realising it's all about some future event. So we'll put it back in its context. It'll make a lot more sense. It'll be more pastoral, more encouraging. Uh, so we'll do that next year. We won't massively try to, un, you know, put, dra- if you've got if you've been raised as I was on went to Bible college being taught this premillennial, pre-tribulational view, it's taken me some time to unwind that. Um, I've wrestled with it myself. I've still tried to argue it. I don't want to just dismiss it. So if you're in that point, um, just be open to the fact that what you may have been taught isn't the only way to interpret this and go further and say, could it be that this dispensational view that I've been taught is actually a new view and is not the prevailing view that most Christians throughout most of the history and certainly the time of Christ, the time of the New Testament, it's not the view they had. Just open yourself up to that, I would say. And maybe you'll start to see some things differently. I appreciate you saying that. The more you read it, the less black and white the entire yes. book is. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Lots to study. All right. Well, before we go to chapter five, we're gonna we're not gonna do Judges five, but we just checked where it was. So Judges five is right back in season one, episode three. So this is like episode three, Convictor. So back in 18th of April or 17th of April or something like that it was when it was published. So you can go back and find that in the notes. And Judges 5 was our first uh, chapter of discussion there. It was you and I, was it? Yes. Yep. Yep. And it was, um, that's why we're not doing it why we're it not today. doing it again. Judges 5 and it was in the 12-minute mark or thereabouts. So you'll be able to find Judges 5. Hopefully it makes sense. All right. So we're going to go straight <laughs> to our final one today, which yes. is First Thessalonians 5.
So obviously, Paul had spoken to these people, the Thessalonians, uh, about the end time. Uh, the Sorry. Second coming. The second coming, yeah. Uh, so this is 1 Thessalonians 5 we're reading because he starts it off like this. Now concerning how and when all this would happen, will happen, dear brothers and sisters, we don't really need to write to you. For you know quite well that the day of the Lord's return will come unexpectedly like a thief in the night. Which presumes that he told them that when he was with them. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So they've been talking about this. They mm. have some knowledge of it. And he says here, when people are saying everything is peaceful and secure, then disaster will fall on them as suddenly as a pregnant woman's labor pain begins and there will be no escape. This can sound terrifying, but it's meant to be encouraging. <laughs> it's meant to be encouraging because it's, it's talking about those who are living their own way, not the Christians. Yeah. So what we're learning here is that the timing of the Lord's second coming, which is often talked about. We're not just making this up in this this book, okay? We're not just creating our own weird nah, theology all here. It. It's all over it. The angel uh, says to the disciples on Mount on on um, the Mount of Olives, this same Jesus whom you saw in the clouds will return yeah. the way he left. So it starts right there. Like Yeah. So it is something you need to wrestle with. It is something that you need to It's fundamental. It's in the creed. It's fundamental to Christian doctrine is yep. the return of Christ to usher in his kingdom. So you can't just love Christ and be a Christian without considering this. No. Because it's it's significant. So, But what we do know, what we can say for sure, is according to this, the timing of the Lord's appearing is not determined by a given date, but it seems to be more like a moral condition. A moral condition. Moral condition. The timing of the Lord. Okay, so you're saying the effectiveness of the Lord, the timing of the Lord's kingdom is not linked to a date, but is linked to the way... The, we are conducting ourselves on the earth. Yes. Okay. And yeah, and, Which fits and what, what the earth before. is life uh, is like at this time. Remember, there's something else that says, um, "In those days, people will be lovers of self yeah. or something." Yep. And um, it makes sense in this context because he's he says, um, "Look for the signs, really, right?" But you aren't you aren't in the dark about these things, dear brothers and sisters, and you won't be surprised for you are the children of light. Um, and day, we don't belong to darkness and night, so be on your guard, not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear-headed. It doesn't specifically say it, but what he means is that he, um, well, what I think he means is that he's reminding them that there are seasons and times. Am I making any sense? Not yet. Keep not going. Yet. No, okay. Persevere. Look, we did have a break in between this when Jill came yeah, and talked to us. she did interrupt us. So. She interrupted us. No, and you're, now doing, you're doing great. I'm just, you, I, I'm making place. sense. You're making sense. I'm just not sure where you're going with your conversation yet. So, uh, uh, okay. Keep going. I'm, I'm tracking with you. I'm tracking. just trying to find out what your, what your final premise is. <laughs> <laughs> I think I've lost it. But other things tell us to look for the seasons, be aware of the time that we are living in, right? Uh, okay, I see where you're going. And I think he, this language here, he's already taught them that as well. Yeah, my concern with that view is that's the view dispensationalists use to try to predict what's happening in the world. So I, I often have Christians go, oh, the times are so dark. You know, that's the sign that we can't be much longer to the signs of time of Christ, right? Dispensationalists, those, a lot, not just dispensationalists, but, but Christians will think, the, what, the, the, the times that they're living in are the sign that the end is near. Um, and I'm just wondering if that's what you're asking. Is, is to, the Paul is telling them, you know, look at how dark the world is, the end is near. I would say if he is, he's saying that not just to us, he's saying that to the Thessalonians 2,000 years ago. So I don't 
where where I get concerned, Jeannie, is when Christians go, well, this is dark days. This must be the end. The end must be coming. And I just feel like saying, why do you think that it's okay for you to say that, but not okay for Christians who have faced persecution in the first century or the second century, or those that were persecuted in the, you know, people suffering in the inquisitions who, who had severe persecution. Why was it wrong for them to say that? That's where I just feel it's a little bit naive for Christians. I'm not saying you're being naive. I just think Christians. Oh get- no, I'm, I'm glad you are because I'm, my long-winded roundabout way, which kind of went nowhere, what I was saying. Yeah, that's why I wasn't I sure was, what you were saying. No, I was all over the place, but that happens after talking for so long. But um, I have been um, stopped in my tracks recently by some study around the I, the Jewish theme of the coming Messiah. Mm-hmm. Is they did this, the coming of the Messiah, which we might say would be the second coming. Yes. Okay. Yep. They seem to say that the world will be more in a more enlightened place. Mm-hmm. There will be more holiness on the planet. Uh, we will be more like the kingdom of God. And when we usher in this time of the Messiah, we are in a place where there is more peace and more happiness. Yes. Uh, that yep. is very different to the Christian view. And and they in, say in that- In the sense that it's not the obliteration of evil, it's just the increase of his government. Is no, that what you mean? it's that the, by the way of our living, the way um, we become- more God, the, the Jewish theme, we become more godly, godly, we bring more holiness to this place. When we reach that point of enlightenment and uh, holiness, the Messiah, the Messiah will, will come. come. So the, th- I get yes, you, I'm tracking. The, the opposite view of what you're just talking about and what I tried to say in a silly way was that the Christians have the view that the world will get worse and worse and worse uh, and worse. Now I'm and then the second, Messi- yes. the second coming yes. of the Messiah. And so I would say both because we've just talked about how Peter seems to indicate the way you Christians conduct yourself can speed the coming. Um, so there is a sense in which it is incumbent on us to live godly lives, but there is also a sense in which we need to be aware that um, people will be, Jesus says, people will be eating and drinking just like they were in the days of Noah. They'll just be going about their business and they will not see the coming of the kingdom. So they will not be ready for the coming of the kingdom. There's a suddenness about it. And he would. I think Paul is saying in this passage, don't spend your whole life concerning yourself with when it is. Just be living a life that is holy, aware that the darkness around you does not mean that it might not come. Because what you're saying is the Jews thought, oh, it's so dark, Messiah won't come. Whereas Christians would say Christ is going to come in the middle of darkness. Yes. So be be ready, be clear headed, be ready for that to happen at any moment, and then conduct yourselves um, in a godly way. I think that's the Christian view that he's trying to get, encourage these guys with. Okay, so that's why he says, so be on your guard, mm. not asleep like the others. Stay alert and be clear, be clear headed, like be different in the moment. Still be the Christian that you. Yes. Keep living clear headed, godly lives. But don't be afraid. Expect at any moment that Jesus could come to inaugurate and bring justice to earth and inaugurate his kingdom. This is his way of expressing that you need to live faithfully and fully in your faith in the moment. Yes, I think so. Okay. So be clear-headed, which is a good term, isn't it? Yeah, it is a good term. Protected by the armour of faith and love and wearing as a helmet the confidence of our salvation. Sounds like Ephesians 6, doesn't it? Yes, it does. Yes. For for God chose to save us through our Lord Jesus Christ, not to pour out his anger on us. God, sorry, Christ died for us so that we are, so that whether we are dead or alive when he returns, we can live with him forever. 
So encourage each other. Build each other up just as you're already doing. Yep. It's encouraging. Yes. It's his purpose there. Um, yep. We don't know when Christ will come. Nope. But live godly, pure, holy lives full of encouragement for each other. And be encouraged that in the end, the the persecution that you're suffering now will be put right. Yeah, yes. That's what he's saying. Yep. Live your days as if it was the last. Yep. Have the relationship with God you want today. Uh, be the witness. Love your neighbor. Yeah, they're all those things. That's the thing. You can read all of those things into that. Yep. Yeah. Uh, here, uh, honor your brother in verse 12. Honor those who are your leaders in the Lord's work. They work hard among you and give you spiritual guidance. Show them respect and wholehearted love because of their work and live peacefully with each other. There you go. Yeah. Warn those who are lazy. <laughs> Encourage those who are timid. Take tender care of those who are weak. Be patient with everyone. Do you think that's a good example of what a Christian should be? I reckon that's a pretty good example. <laughs> there's, a, there's a few sentences there that you could master in a life. You could take a lifetime to master, but that's a pattern of how he's urging them to live in light of the ultimate coming of the kingdom. Yeah, practical things that you can do. In verse 15 here, it reminds me of Psalm 37. See that no one pays back evil for evil, but -hmm. always try to do good to each other and to all people. Yep. Yeah. Yep. It all links, doesn't it? Yeah. Somehow, eventually. And here, the joyful topic. Always be joyful. Seems like joy is kind of a choice at times. Yeah. But what is the catalyst and reason for us to have joy? It has to be linked to the um, the fact that we have a future kingdom awaiting us. That's what gives us the joy. That's what gives us the hope. Be joyful for the future. Yes. That you will be plucked he- out of this time. Exactly. Into- he- Hebrews says about Jesus, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame. So there's a picture for us. It, and he, then Hebrews is trying to use that about Jesus, but then say the same to us. Because you have a hope, the joy of the future, let that be the thing that that inspires you to endure hardship and, and difficulty and pain and persecution in this life. So somehow look beyond your circumstance. Yes, That's absolutely. what you're saying. And that's a prevailing view in the New Testament, which you understand to a people who are a fledgling movement up against it, in, on every front, that's a normal view that people would need. Otherwise, they would go, human nature would go, this is all too hard. I give up. Never stop praying. Never stop praying. Be thankful in all circumstances. Notice how he doesn't say be thankful for, for yep. all circumstances, for this is God's will. Wow. He just says there what God's will is. You know how often we wonder what God's there's, will there's is for our life? Yep. There, to be thankful in all circumstances. That's God's will for us. Yep. That's hard to do. <laughs> Yes, it is. I hate to be honest, but yes, it is. Yes, it is hard. Yeah. For you who belong, hang on, but this is God's will for you who belong to, yeah, okay. So it's being the verse specific to believers. Yes, it's, a, it's, it's right, specific to believers, for so you who belong to Christ Jesus. 19. Mm-hmm. Do not stifle the Holy Spirit. Mm. How do we do that? Yeah. Let's put it in its context. I think it's the opposite of, of everything above. If we are failing to do those things Paul has said, this is the Holy Spirit that will enable us to do those things. So if we don't do those things because we haven't, let's go back to what we said about having a pure heart or surrendering to God or letting Him, letting the Holy Spirit's love be in us, that will stifle the Holy Spirit and we will not live that kind of life. So allow the Holy Spirit to produce in us all of those fruit, that yep. lifestyle. Does it have something to do with um, the idea of the log in your own eye? In connection with the next verse, does it have something to do with the log in your own 
own eye where it says, do not scoff at prophecies. But test because everything it's like, said. Yeah. So, so here, don't, st- don't stifle the Holy Spirit by just ignoring the, the gift in other people. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. That makes sense too. But also in that sense of, um, remember you, they're starting a church here. There's a lot of different people. There's a lot of, uh, there are women, there might be, um, children, there might be poor people, uneducated people, but somehow it sort of says, it's saying to me that the Holy Spirit can move in their lives. So who am I to judge Yep. And say, hey, the Holy Spirit didn't talk didn't to them. Talk to you. That so prophecy can't Spirit be true yep, because yep. you're uneducated. Therefore, it's like, well, that makes the sense. log in my own eye is that I'm, I'm assuming I'm you I'm hearing can't from be. God, but you are. Yeah. You aren't. Yes. That that makes sense. It fits too. I don't know the structure of sense, the Greek sentence. And, and the writers will have had to make some kind of assumptions when they read this because there's no punctuation in the original Greek. There's no right. sentences, yes, there's okay. no full stops, there's nothing. Yeah. So they will have had to have made some some assumptions about what it's trying to say. Uh, the New King James, what verse is it? 19. So the New King James, do not quench the spirit, do not despise prophecies, test all things. Yeah, so they've put a, they've put a full, full stop there. So the question is, what is the quenching of the spirit, the Holy Spirit? Does it refer to everything just written above or does it refer to what he's about to say in the next bit about prophecy? I don't know. I could read it both ways. It's a hard, it's hard sentence because you, you know, I don't know how to make sense of it. I could also read it as a standalone sentence. Like a lot of those other ones are standalone commands, the ones that went beforehand. They're not all linked to each other. Some of them are, but some of them are just standalone. (laughs) You want to know what God's will is? Do this. So could be that. I don't know. I think there's some freedom there to choose. (laughs) Yeah. What I do like though is that it's saying that we can stifle the Holy Spirit. Yes, that's right. Because we think of the Holy Spirit as this almighty, powerful thing that nothing can stand in the way, but in fact, humans can stop. Yeah, which is that partnership thing again. Uh, And I'm willingness to partner with God. God will willingly, because the Lord wants to work in partnership to bring his will to the earth. So if we don't, if we don't pray, we don't pray the Lord's prayer, you know, we don't pray the Lord's kingdom come and we don't live that out. We are quenching the spirit. That's a th- sobering thought, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Mm. While I can think about that one, the next one, verse 22, is very obvious and I don't really need to think about it. Stay away from every kind avoid of it. evil. Mm-hmm. Don't avoid need to think it. about it. Yeah, yeah, avoid it. I even know why to avoid it. So that, that one's pretty obvious. I think Paul says to Timothy, avoid even the appearance of evil. Not just avoid evil, but avoid anything that others might accuse you of doing something that is evil. Which takes it to a whole nother level again. Is that because we have to look like we are set apart? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. We have to look different from the world yes, around and us. If we if we are accused of evil, it doesn't actually matter whether we've done it or not. We have the very fact that we've placed ourselves in a position where we could be accused of evil and and be misunderstood actually undermines our witness, even if we haven't done anything wrong. So we need to be squeaky clean in that way. So that there isn't grounds for accusation is what Paul's trying to say. Because even in this days, these days, just the accusation is enough to get cancelled. enough cancel. to get cancelled. That's right. Exactly. Yeah. And then you undermine all your work. There is no innocence before being proven guilty. No. You're immediately no. guilty. That's right. So while we're in this world, it's really good to know verse 23. May the God of peace make you holy in every way and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless until our Lord Jesus Christ comes again. Perusia. Again. Perusia again. Yeah. The God of peace, as we talked yep. about. 
God of peace makes us holy. We don't make ourselves holy. He, he makes, makes us, us holy. holy. Yep. And verse 25. Oh, hang on. Verse 24. God will make this happen for he who calls you is faithful. So he will make the second coming happen. That's what he's saying there, yes, right? Yes, that's what he's saying. It will happen. He's not saying, or is he saying as well, he will make your whole spirit and soul. Yeah, you're getting into sentence structure yeah. here, and and I honestly don't know. I think I think the scholars would argue about what flows with what. What's the different components of these sentences? I don't know, but both are valid. I can read, I can read God's making you the the thing God is making happen is the holiness, or I could see the thing God is making happen is the second coming. It's probably both. It's probably both. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Twenty-five. There's no one misunderstanding that, dear brothers and sisters. Pray for us. I love the fact that Paul so often coveted the prayers of saints. And Jill was Jill and I were talking about this just the other day, and Jill was just saying how she sees Paul's heart so often in asking for prayer. Yeah, as great as he was, as yep. much as he knew, he still said, "Pray for me. I need your prayers. I covet them." Yeah, exactly. As close as he was to God. Yep, it meant a lot to him that people would pray for him. And we, we feel that same way too as pastors. We value the prayers of those around us. Mm. There's something in prayer. Maybe you should do a podcast on that. Maybe we should. I said you, not me. <laughs> <laughs> okay. How long do you have? Yeah, yeah that's right. <laughs> Very complex issue. Not one size fits all prayer. And I'll finish with this verse 27. I command you in the name of the Lord to read this letter to all the brothers and sisters. Oh, he wanted it read, didn't he? It's a command at the end of yeah. his. Don't, don't, you can, you know, he's written lovely words, but he's going, read this. Does he say that in any of the other letters? Uh, I, not that I can think of so strongly. I think he urges, like, take this letter at Colossians and now read the one I sent to the Laodiceans, circulate it. So he asks, but I don't remember him saying it quite so emphatically. I command you read this not off the top of my head do you have, what do you know no i don't no. know i'm just thinking yeah. like if if this is the one letter that he wants everybody to read uh well i think he's talking about the people in thessalonica make sure that the whole church reads this letter because he's not necessarily assuming that this thessalonica is that's true. a long way from corinth or ephesus i mean this is these are hundreds of kilometers apart maybe the Philipp- philippians and the bereans are only within a couple of days' journey, but apart from that, there's not much else up in Macedonia. Except, if I remember rightly, the Bible was meant to be inspired by the Holy Spirit, and is not the Holy Spirit saying, "I command yes, you to read this"? Yes, letter. there's an element of that. Element of that, but yeah. that wouldn't have been necessarily front and center in Paul's thinking. No. He's writing this letter to the Thessalonians. He may or may not have been aware that eventually this was going to come and circulate and become part of a cor- uh, you know uh, a corpus of letters that would be written and circulated everywhere. To what degree he knew that is debatable, but he was specifically writing to the Thessalonians at the time. Okay, lots to think about. Going to read it again. All right. And I love how he finishes his letters. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Yeah, and that's not just a tack on. That's a genuine heartfelt thing. It's not like, oh, by the way, blessings, see you later. No. It's more than that. It carries with it um, rich in meaning as well. I would would love somebody to end a letter like that. um, Grace and peace to you. You know what I have been noticing we'll start um, with it. during because that's it's true. We need God's grace, yes. the Lord, His grace in our life, and I've been noticing um, during this whole Israeli Hamas stuff and people American commentary, I should say, they are saying to people, um, "Our prayers are with you. Our prayers are with you." And like every time I hear it, I stop and I say, 
oh, I just wish. Are you actually praying? Yeah, I just wish one of them would say, my prayers are for you. Yes. I am praying for you. Yes. And I heard one person last night wow. say that and I knew he has he has the heart. Yeah. He has the love of the Lord it Jesus It was more in than just an empty um, statement that you tack on. Thoughts and yeah. prayers are with you. Yeah. It just sounds sounds nice, but is it actually is it actually no, happening? But it's also implying More I'm often. doing something. Yes, that's I'll right. finish I'm my actually, interview yep. or even during this interview, I'm actually praying, praying for, for you. you. I love that. Yeah. That's how we as Christians should operate. Yeah. And as Christians we are praying for the world around us. And we and we should and we must pray for the world around us. Yeah. For sure. I have no further comment or questions. All right. We'll leave it at that then. Hey, that's it. Thank we got one more. The very last one of the year, I think, is yes. supposed to be yep. the very last one of the year we'll be doing with you, Jenny. So All right. All right. <laughs> Thanks for listening. Thanks everybody. Yeah. Have a great day.